Hello and welcome to End on End. I'm Brian. I'm Jeff. And we are off to the races with a new band. A big band. Yes. This uh, especially very defining for the times and for the 90s, I think. A paradigm shift was afoot. Yeah. And I feel like uh, this band that we're talking about today, which everyone already knows who it is, Hoover, <laughs> really to me like represented, at least coming out of Discord, a real fundamental shift in hardcore that was very distinctly 1990s. And I feel like kind of all the bands that have been covered on this podcast up to this point, and you've spent a lot of time in the 1990s already. Yeah, man. But I still feel like almost all of the bands that have been covered in the 1990s were still kind of 80s bands continuing mm -hmm. onward in the 90s or bands that were still made up of people predominantly known for their work in the 1980s. And to me, this feels like the first record on Discord that was sort of a part of this new thing that happened in hardcore and and sort of an era of hardcore that you and I were both very involved in. Yeah. Um, you probably more than me when it comes to this style. But anyway, there's lots to talk about, I feel, about Hoover, not just this record, which is not really even their defining record, but sort of a, an opening teaser to their brief career. Right. Uh, but I feel like there's so much to talk about as far as, you know, the beginning Context of this of the new time. style. Yes, definitely. Right. Absolutely. And I'd be remiss in not welcoming you back you you've been on recently but it's always good to have you on this is what's been second just time a few months year. yeah yeah not bad you know um <laughs> average. yeah we well we did the jaw box the uh jackpot plus seven inch which was not that long ago only maybe three or four episodes ago mm -hmm. um in old times under the old brian gaffey <laughs> yeah the original uh intent you would have already been like you know, 20 records down the road or whatever since that yeah, last episode. Mind me. Yeah. Listen, you're you're a busy guy and uh you know, so be it. Everyone's patient. There's no rush, right? To yeah. This thing. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, what I found, especially then, was people were still catching up episode like two or three episodes back, no matter which ones I was releasing, because they are so long. So now it just gives people time to digest and be ready for it when it <laughs> when it drops. Which right, is my because because anyway. yeah, that's your excuse, but that is not <laughs> that is not the reason why that's happening. But <laughs> it's okay, it's fine, it's good. I have kept up on every episode, although full disclosure, as of the recording of this episode, the Circus Lupus Solid Brass episode has not yet come out. No, nope. so we'll keep that in mind, especially when it comes to the uh, the playlist later. But right, right, and uh, yeah, it's. <laughs> what am I saying? I was about to tell say that uh don't worry, it's coming out this week, but obviously people have already heard it by the time they hear this. So scratch. Yeah, if you've heard this, <laughs> then the Circus Lupus episode is out. But I just want people to know it's too. not, it's it's in the can as we're recording this. So exactly. I'm not privy to it. And also, spoiler alert, I'm not on that, although listeners will already know that too. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, yeah. The, hence the magic of uh, the non-live, non-real-time, all-time is the right time uh, of podcasts. <laughs> it's always the present, the ever-present in podcast land. Yeah. So 
yeah, Hoover and Sidecar Freddy, I guess is what everyone calls it. I don't know if that's the official name. The Sidecar Freddy slash Cable Two Song mm-hmm. Seven Inch Single, I guess. And this is Discord seventy nine and a half split label release with Hoover Union. Uh, I'm sorry, not Hoover, Hoover Union. Hoover Limited. Limited. And this is Hoover Limited number one. And there was only one other Hoover Limited release, which was the uh, 93, three-song self-titled 7-inch from 1993, which we or you or, well, it's all collectively, <laughs> we'll be discussing uh, when we get to Discord 86 and a half. So. Right. Hence the limited part of the name. Yes. <laughs> limited to two releases. <laughs> right. All right. Well, before we do, you know what we do here. Jeff, since I last talked to you, what have you been up to? You've got a minute and a half to tell me everything you've been up to, into, and all about. Well, if we're talking about what I've been listening to, I don't even need that much time. Um, (laughs) But uh, last month, uh, October, November, has been a month of great travel. I've seen a lot of the country since the last time we spoke. And yeah, you have. You know, in early October, I was in Pittsburgh for a little bit, played a gig out there, saw my bass player get married, kind of. Well, he was already married, but this was sort of their party because they got married during COVID and, mm-hmm. you know, it's more of an elopement. So this was a, an excuse to play a gig and then um, celebrate uh, his his wedding to the lovely Gia. And then uh, this month, this past month, uh, my wife and I went away for about a week and a half, and we flew into your old stomping grounds of Denver, Colorado. And over the course of a week and a half and about 1,500 miles, made our way to San Diego and along the way. But somehow not up a little further to Northern California. (laughs) No, no, you're right. We were not in Northern California, Uh, but- we went to four national parks in four days, mm. uh, Arches, uh, Mesa Verde, Grand Canyon, and Joshua Tree. Uh, my friend Merrily, who listens to this, I posted a photo of her on the Discord server. She's very um, intertwined in Discord land as well. And uh, so we stayed with her for a night in Joshua Tree. Magnificent. What a yeah. absolutely magnificent corner of the country. And It feels psychedelic out there. It's yeah, without having to take any. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think the arches. That was my second time with the arches, and that might be one of my favorite places on planet Earth. Really, I love that place. Yeah, it's otherworldly, and uh, going back there at night after the sun sets is magical because I don't live in a land of no light pollution. Yeah, I live yeah. in a land of extreme light pollution. You're lucky <laughs> to see the moon, uh, let alone every single star in the sky when you do those kind of trips it's it's a lot of philosophizing about how incredibly small we are i mean if you ever really want to feel small both in terms of size and time Mm -hmm. uh go out to the southwest but it was it was a magnificent trip and i could talk about it for an hour but that is not what we're here to talk about (laughs) this is not a travel podcast this is a discord podcast so we'll leave it at that what what was your soundtrack for it Musically, a lot of classic rock, honestly. I did get my Meat Puppets record in as we were <laughs> crossing through Arizona. I absolutely insisted on that. Nice. Um, 
and really just just sort of a lot of podcasts too, like mm-hmm. not even necessarily musical things. But uh, you know, mm-hmm. there was there was some jazz mixed in there, there was some punk rock mixed in there, there was some classic rock mixed in there. Cool. Well, what about have you gone to any memorable shows? Heard anything that uh, or gotten any reissues even that's turned your head around? Well, I did order the Minor Threat seven inch you and just came everybody me and everyone else (laughs) uh it has not arrived yet that was such a shock when that they dropped that info that that's coming out yeah they kept that a secret and hey it guarantees because was there another minor threat episode on the slate i guess there was right wasn't Mm -hmm. there like a isn't there like a demos thing coming up or oh yeah yeah the first demo is definitely coming okay so well now you're guaranteed at least another yeah another one but I have seen I've seen a couple of shows since the last time I saw you. Uh, I saw Helmet, oh, um, in early October. So I mean, I was such a big fan of theirs, as I'm sure you were and everyone else was uh, when they first came out in the early mm-hmm. '90s. You know, listen, Page is now in his early to mid '60s. I guess he still plays great. You know, he can't. He doesn't scream like mm-hmm. that anymore. And makes adjustments, and to his credit, a bunch of Helmet records that have come out since the band originally broke up in the late 90s you know they reformed maybe around 2004 and mm-hmm. i didn't even know they have at least a half a dozen records that they put out since then i don't know who's buying these records i don't <laughs> know if anyone is buying these records right. but i mean a very healthy chunk of the set were newer songs and not bad you know some of them weren't bad uh he played a couple of songs like real chestnuts my favorite he played the song taken which was like an early amrep seven inch comp track Oh. Like totally obscure song, nice. but amazing song. And the band, the band he's got are totally solid. You know, I mean, you're never going to replace the original guys, but uh, the guys in the band are really, really good. And a Long Island bass player in the mix, huh. uh, Dave Case, who's played in a bunch of bands and yeah, just killing it. Just killing it. Nice. Uh, I saw the Cosmic Psychos mm-hmm. uh, over here. Always love seeing them, you know, um, a younger Australian band who has a bit of a buzz called the Chats. Uh, took them on the road with them. So pretty cool, sort of, you know, the younger hipper band um, bringing along sort of the elder statesmen. Yeah. Uh, but they were great. Um, and then before I left on my trip, I saw Bad Religion for the, I don't know, 37th time in my life or something <laughs> like that. And uh, fantastic as always. I mean, I, you know, got nothing bad to say about them. Good set. The old heads will always complain that they don't play enough early stuff. I'm not one of those people because. They're one of the few bands that have really followed their entire career, like from when I got into them, like roughly 91 till now, like what every record in real time, I see them like on every tour and uh, I could probably do a a song by song, bad religion podcast. I don't think the world needs that. Um, And I'm probably not the one to do it. And (laughs) I probably quit like four episodes in anyway. So what's the point? Mm -hmm. But uh, I love the bands, just love what they do. Um, I don't feel like they've written the same record over and over again, which is a big criticism of theirs. Uh, yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan. And when they come around, I, I like to go see them. I'm surprised they haven't done those. Uh, they seem right. Perfect demographic to do those things. I'm getting sick of those band plays entire. Oh, they've done album. plenty of that. Oh, they have done that. Well, they've done stuff like that for sure. And well, actually what they do is they do like these decades shows. Oh, okay. So this was not that, but I've seen yeah. that and they did three nights in a row at Irving Plaza where they did like 80s, 90s, 2000s. Okay. Um, and I went every night. 
so that was kind of cool. That's kind of when you hear the deeper cuts. Yeah. Because uh, some of my favorite albums of theirs are like albums that they don't ever play a song from. Uh, so it's cool to see them. But yeah, good, good show. So, okay. you know, nothing to um, I have some good shows coming up, but maybe the next time I'm on the show, maybe I'll talk about those. Yeah, for sure. Very related. I know. Yeah. So, yeah. So what about, uh, yes, one of which, one of which I'm not a hundred percent sure I'm going is the soul side is the soul side (laughs) scream show. Just really, uh, just, just so busy around that time. And I have seen both of those bands. So we, and relatively recently. So we'll see about that one, but yeah, I feel like, as a discord guy I should probably go to that show <laughs> so we'll, we'll we'll see what happens it's not even that far away especially um, scream because of one having unfortunately for you know the everyone knows for sad reasons but having the mighty jerry busher on the drum stool such a good drummer and uh and getting to see him play these new songs would be a treat i feel like which i haven't so yeah okay yeah. so we'll 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 see about that Tell you what, if you come out to new york <laughs> we can go to the show together. All right. All right. You said you you heard it here for, for, <laughs> for folks. It's not gonna happen, but all right. We'll see what happens. How about you? What have you uh I do not, have a couple of quick musical things, but I'll throw it over to you. Like have you seen anyone recently? No done any traveling, done anything fun? No, nah, you know, a, a lot of family time, which is essential with a young, young baby. And uh now, I mean a couple shows that I missed that were amazing, including the Soul Side Scream one. <laughs> when they were on tour out here, that hurt really badly to miss that. But yeah, it's just I've got to be realistic. I can't I can't do everything anymore. Uh, so no, I've got a couple shows coming up as well. That'll be good. And I've got very little to uh, talk about this week. I'll mention the first half because I've read. A, exactly half of uh well no not quite half like almost half of the very long uh but amazing so far really so well done uh thurston moore autobiography sonic life i'm only up to what 81 ish into beginning of 82 so far so sonic youth are just he's kind of just meeting everybody he's talk about really touchingly about when him and Kim met and their kind of courtship, which was really nice. Uh, and just, he really goes into a lot of the formative years for him and, and all the music that just blew him away and seeing all these shows and, uh, artists and, you know, what New York was like at the time as well. And it's a lot of fun. It's really well done. He's not like, you know, he's he's no Patti Smith, I mean, but who is as far as writing. But, you know, I'm captivated so far. It, it's surpassed what I expected because I, I go back and forth on Sonic Youth, I, to be honest. There's some classic records. I've seen some amazing shows back in the old days, but there's times where I just don't feel like listening to them and I kind of write them off and then I get back in the mood. So this is getting me in the mood. Good stuff. Sonic Life, Thurston Moore. And this is a... Uh birth through present day kind of autobiography so far i mean like i said i'm barely halfway in and he's only up to 81 and he's just starting to talk about getting into hardcore (laughs) so you know i was hoping to get to the parts where he starts talking about dc because he definitely will he loves the faith especially 
So that'll have to be next episode when I finally get I wonder, plow through uh, this thing. I wonder if we'll talk about the Untouchables because Sonic Youth. Oh yeah, Nick. Yeah, Fit. yeah, yeah. He's got to. Um, that's true. Jeez, he's all about Alec McKay, huh? Hey, like who? Who isn't? Yeah, into who Alec is? <laughs> you know, I'm into. I'm into Alec. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's 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 the mystery man of the McKay family. Um, oh, for sure. So, yeah. but that'll be interesting, and I think that as you, I'm sure he'll talk about each of the albums and yeah, the making of it. And how could you not then want to pull it off the shelf and listen to it? Absolutely, so. especially those classic, classic early ones after the first two twelve inches. Like the next, what at least four or five, you know, are just so good. Like roughly, like starting around Bad Moon Rising. Like, uh huh. Exactly. I I like the early. I like those early records too, though. I like them, but I I they're they're like. Not the first or the second thing I go for. It's like if I'm in a deep Sonic Youth mood, then I'll work my way back to them. But yeah, they're good. I think I first became aware of Sonic Youth around the second one, and I enjoyed it then. And it was definitely sounded alien to my young, young ears at the time, but I, I dug it. As far as music bios go, it's it's really good. You just can feel his uh, passion and his devotion to music and discovering music much less playing it so it's great uh so far well unless it takes a big nosedive once he gets to the part everyone <laughs> wants to hear about it so, yeah. but uh yeah that's great and i hope he's doing okay because he was supposed to speak out here he's supposed to do a tour talking about you know doing these kind of talks about the book but he canceled those because of health reasons and i saw that yeah, yeah hopefully he's all right um, speaking of which, I guess now's as good as place as any. Got to drop our RIP of the episode for uh, Jordy from uh, Killing Joke, right? Yeah, Kevin Jordy Walker, sixty-four, suffered a stroke, and um, you know, Killing Joke certainly like a subversive band mm -hmm. that was in part certainly defined by his very unique guitar style yeah, and guitar yeah. tone, and was shocked to read. I mean, I knew that he was well-respected and well-loved. I guess sometimes, though, the outpouring is even more than you anticipate. Right. And I read somewhere that like, even like Jimmy Page, who seems like what? he'd be a fan <laughs> yeah. of nothing, like even Jimmy Page is like a big fan of his. Well, you know what? I read that somewhere. It's probably the cult connections, honestly, because like, with jazz being so deep into the occult, and, oh, and the occult. The I thought you said. I thought you said it's. Oh yeah, yes, like, I'm up the cult. I, I said I'm like, okay, where is this going, Ryan? <laughs> no, yeah, but uh, being like so into it, and of course, uh, Paige being so into it that he bought Crowley's uh, old estate and probably all kinds of artifacts. So you know they've had to cross paths in those circles. Yeah, I mean, I didn't see that he specifically. You know, they have. They always have these. You know these guitars they come out with a little statement or whatever mm -hmm. and i didn't see that jimmy page but i just saw it mentioned somewhere that like his his fan base reached as far and wide as like jimmy page which is uh which is pretty cool like if that he is. recognized his you know his talent and his his unique flavor his unique tone his unique stylings i mean yeah so yeah, i mean along with people like keith levine he was one of the defining architects of that uh whole new post-punk direction so yeah it's sad we're losing a lot of them They're it is awesome. 64 just feels way too young 
It really does. Uh, you know, once they hit 70 or above, especially anyone that's sort of it's lived fair game. <laughs> a touring. Yeah. I mean, listen, you, you live a touring rock hard lifestyle living, for your yeah. life. I mean, okay. it's hard living, even if you're not hard living, you know what I mean? <laughs> that kind of lifestyle. And I think if you make it to 70, you're like, you've really won the game. 64 just feels too young to me. And Killing Joke have been active in recent years. I, oh, yeah. I never got to see them, but I know that they've played New York at least a few times in the last few years, right? I think they yeah. even put out something new recently. A couple of years ago, I believe, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. I think maybe we even talked about it or something. I know. At some I, point. God knows. It, we're yeah. old. At the, I can't remember. No. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. And for, for, for Jordy, too, like, uh, who was it? I think Danny Ingram wrote a thing talking about it and saying how uh fred from beef eater uh even had a run-in with him and and that jordy complimented his playing or something and it just like blew fred away and was like what you're complimenting me you know oh well deserved really fred nice. had, was a very unique guitar player as well so yeah yeah, yeah. it's nice so anyhow uh the only other thing i'll mention is this band semi-related to the show uh so chris wade who was in the band, a band that I've mentioned, my records being next to on that part of the show, Hose Got Cable. Mm-hmm. He was in uh, the band Groove and then Hose Got Cable. So he's got a new band, a trio with two other folks, uh, Lee Diamond and Lance Curran, who I'm not familiar with, but they were parts of bands named Douglas Kings and Careful. But they have a new uh, EP out, two songs. It's on Bandcamp, and uh, it was recorded in Chicago, but mixed by Jay Robbins at Magpie Cage, and it sounds huge. It's got such great production, actually, almost too good. It's not quite glossy. It's not quite overproduced, but it's just (laughs) right up to that fence. The guitars have—everybody has great tones. The drums sound good. The guitars sound amazing. The bass sounds really fat especially on the second song on Strawberry, plays some really interesting uh, kind of catchy but really punchy bass lines. You know, if if anyone's familiar with Ho's Got Cable, it's got that kind of vibe, you know, even something like Quicksand a little bit, who I don't like, but I like this part of their element, the guitar sound that the guy's got, that Chris has got, and it's it's just really, I don't know, it's got a great, great, solid beefy guitar tone like a little bit more overdriven dc type tone (laughs) type of sound the guitar plays very really perfect but uh only rhythm based so there's no there's no little riffs or ringing out guitar parts it's all really chugging but in the very best way this record which i forgot to say is called with patience the band sorry all this talk uh with patience and the ep is fitted sheet with strawberry is the other song but yeah i mean these guys sound like they would be uh if you told me this was early 90s i would believe it it sounds that way except the production's better but it's it's all the best elements of that time period i think the vocals are actually like really good and almost i can't place which singer but they have almost dag nasty quality to them say a little bit of smally a little bit of brown a little bit of you know a little bit of every singer uh mixed together they're they're really distinctive and clear and 
they make the songs because without them the the songs would just be these cool groove based uh exercises but i really enjoy it so i i definitely think people that are into this time period of discord stuff with like jawbox and uh even what we're talking about today hoover and like i said his old band host got cable that they should definitely check out with patience i'm i'm excited to see what they do next and hopefully they're not just some just quick little project which a lot of folks our age do instead of doing full-on bands well yeah. i like both groove and hose got cable so yeah me too me too something to check yeah. out something to check out yeah uh yeah you know you mentioned smalley and since mm-hmm. uh he's relevant to the discord conversation you know smalley i don't know the exact details but i know smalley got very very sick like in oh, the right. hospital yeah sick dys was supposed to play a handful of dates and they were supposed they to, to cancel play. the tour right yeah they canceled the whole tour and i think yeah i think he got very 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 sick but i've also heard that uh he is on the mend so you know knock on wood he'll be right. he'll be getting back out there soon yeah so that's all i got for this episode so i i understand you've got some more music well, just just a couple of things, really, both of which are related to and on end. Also, that's right. Yes, uh, I know one of them. Yeah. So, well, the first one that you maybe don't know that I'm going to bring up, although we talked about it off air, is it, it gave me such pleasure, by the way, to hear you interview John Moore from Tar mm. for the mm-hmm. uh, Drawbox Tar episode because I am I am a huge huge Tar fan, and you know that seven inches, whatever, it's a novelty kind of thing. You know, each band. Rec- you know, releasing, you know, you know just recording a song because it happened to have the same song title. You know, it is, and, but um, I, I, unlike Ben, though, I gotta say, I, their Jawbox cover really surprised me how much I liked it. I thought it was sure, really I, it's well done. It doesn't mean yeah. it's not a novelty, though. It's a really well done novelty. Okay. <laughs> uh, but for sure, but what really made me happy about listening to that ep- that interview isn't just that John Moore and Tar just are not discussed. A tremendous amount anymore and i feel like they should be but uh hearing your interview with him was great and i thought he was a great interviewee and it turned me on to the band that he mentioned that he's doing now with mike greenlees who was also in tar and mm-hmm. that's this uh deep tunnel project yeah they're great and i immediately went to Bandcamp. i bought and downloaded both the songs uh one of which was like way more melodic almost reminded me a little bit of like slovenly kind of mm. And then the other song, uh, which really sounded like it could be like a tar song for 2023, really, really enjoyed that stuff. So um, it was just kind of glossed over a little bit. Also, both of the songs were mixed by Jay Robbins. Yeah. Uh, so I definitely recommend checking those two songs out if you're a tar fan and are curious to uh, hear what two of the guys are up to. Like you mentioned in the episode, hopefully that uh, full LP will be out he said by the end of the year we'll see that's only uh one month away <laughs> he also mentioned uh hopefully playing a show out in new york i've been following their facebook page for any show announcements and i haven't seen any mm-hmm. so you know sometimes it's easier said than done but i would love to see them plenty of places for them to play in new york and i think uh, plenty of people here who were definitely fans of tar and and would be into that yeah so uh, the other quick thing I'll mention is a new punk band from Los Angeles featuring 
the one and only Ben Merlis, regular guest co-host here at End on End and uh, 185 Miles South podcast. And this is sort of a continuation of his last band, Surprise Vacation. It's got the same other two guys in the band, uh, drummer Javier Cruz and bassist Wyatt Lavasur. And, uh, you know, he always joked with us how nobody could ever remember his band, his name. band's name. Like nobody could ever remember surprise vacation. Mm-hmm. And like, that was kind of the reason why they changed the name. I, listen, I love Ben and I think he's awesome. And we communicate and we chat and he makes me laugh every time we talk or chat. Yep. I'm not sure the band name future confusion <laughs> is, is necessarily going to solve the problem of, of the name. It's sort of a similar meter mm-hmm. kind of name mm-hmm. but i wish them luck with future confusion and uh, but anyway they have a three song thing on Bandcamp, and again i bought i downloaded it and i dig it it's very la punk it's uh you know would ben, you call it 1.5 perhaps it it is sort of 1.5 <laughs> right because it's sort of a little got bit, this yeah. it's got this poppy like in, in places almost like in the guitars almost like a little early beatles-esque surfy kind of feel to some of the songs um especially the uh the first song you know ben sings on this he plays guitar and he's got a lot of really tasty little guitar riffs on this song on this on this uh on this so i i like all three songs they're all you know pretty short sort of catchy songs definitely not hardcore Mm -mm. um but you know just sort of that good early 80s la punk vibe to a lot of it so definitely i i definitely hear like his love of adolescence. I definitely hear his worship of Brian Baker come out a little bit in his playing. You know? mm-hmm. Oh it's yeah, for sure. But yeah, but some of the, some of the guitar playing especially really impressed me. Mm-hmm. Um, so good yeah, stuff. So if definitely. you want to support our buddy Ben and, you know, hear, hear him vocalize in a more musical medium, you know, like I remember Ben from fields of fire, which was, you know, his sort of straight edge, hardcore band, of the late 80s where it's a little which was pretty melodic for that style but you know also way more aggressive so you know hearing this in this context uh it was cool i i dug it because i have to admit i never heard any of the surprise vacation stuff i don't mm. know if you ever did i but. did and and i i think this sounds better than the stuff i heard of surprise vacation which was good but the production on this is good and it it sounded uh amped to play which is always a big plus with punk rock yeah you know? definitely definitely so good stuff so go support a fellow end on ender um so future confusion and they're on Bandcamp and all that i don't know that there's a uh physical release for these songs planned or no. not but at this point it's just digital so yeah yeah definitely i'm glad you mentioned that because if you didn't i was gonna so yeah ben support the man and yes. You know, let's not talk too much about it because we have an episode coming on it just down the pike a number of years. Have you dived into that new scream at all? No, I have not. I'm waiting for this week uh, leading up to the show, which I may or may not go to, but no, I have not. Have you? Uh, Well, similar to yourself, because I want to I want to give it a chance. I don't I want to absorb the whole thing not just put it on as i'm going about my life doing all this other stuff because they're an important band to me so with that more than you i guess so i've listened to the first about five songs over a few times kind of ingesting it in little clumps so i got the first clump down and uh 
<laughs> and I'm enjoying that clump. It's good. Uh, it's a good clump. It is a good clump. Better so far, in my opinion, than Complete Control, which wasn't bad, but it just felt kind of like a placeholder. You know, it was exciting to have new screen material, but it wasn't anything that I regularly grab at all. Whereas these songs, there's a hand, like at least every other one, I'm like, okay, this is a good addition to the catalog. So I, I'm excited to uh, get through the whole thing. It's nice that they put out not just the record, but all those extra bonus songs as part of it too. Yeah, I never heard Complete Control either. So, Oh, you didn't hear it? Shame on me. No. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got some homework. That's good. Uh, yeah, obviously. All right, I feel well, useless today, Brian. I haven't listened to anything. I haven't done anything. <laughs> well, hopefully you've listened to the Hoover Sidecar Freddy 7-inch. I did listen to that. Time. I did listen to that. Okay. See, good. I only do two songs 7-inches now. I see. I know. Just, I uh, you know, well, I, you know, the budget only allows you, you know, two songs a, a gig, you know, it's just. Right. And I can only afford to pay you for two songs. Of... Right. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm <laughs> yeah, saying. So yeah. people should join the Patreon so I could do a three song <laughs> record. Right. A three song. All right. Uh, so with that, let's pull the dusty book off the top shelf and turn to the history chapter on influential hoover all right so you know keeping in mind that we do have a great interview coming up with uh, joseph mcredmond there is a lot here and i'll i'll do the best i can I'll at least get us started if nothing else so as we said we are at discord 79 and a half the first release by hoover um all around not just on discord but their first record period the sidecore freddie cable two song single this was Discord's final release of 1992, which puts this a little bit out of the chronology because yeah. going back to Jackpot Plus and the Jawbox Tar Split and Rainbows from Adams and Solid Brass, those are all 1993 releases. So this is this is the last record that actually came out in 1992. So just to get to the bare bones facts, as far as I'm aware of them, to be expanded upon, I'm sure, or corrected by Mr. McRedmond. <laughs> so guitarist Joseph P. McRedmond had been in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania-based Admiral, who put out two absolutely fantastic seven inches that I am a huge fan of both of them. They have the uh, the first self-titled one on Soul Force Records in 1990, and the second revolving and loading on Ebolition in 1991. If I'm not mistaken, I think that first Admiral record was actually recorded at Inner Ear. I you are not about mistaken. That, but yeah. I am not mistaken. All right, there we go. I don't think the second one was, but I think the first mm-hmm. one was. So he had met guitarist Alex Dunham, who was on tour with his band, uh, Wind of Change, who were from Mesa, Arizona, in the summer of 1989, when the two bands played a show together in Pittsburgh. And Wind of Change uh, had a demo. They had two seven inches, which were ultimately compiled on the Retrospect LP, released on Old World Records in 1990. Also, a pretty major Discord connection uh, with Wind of Change as well, in that also in that band were the Wall Brothers, Jim and John, who, after Wind of Change broke up, formed the band Kerosene 454 who, like everyone else in Hoover, uh, moved to D.C. 
and one of their records, which you'll be covering once you get to around 96, 97, um, came by to kill me. And that was a split discord release with slow dive. So that's discord 111 and a half. So wind of change breeding a couple of, uh, latter day discord releases or later day discord releases, I should say. Yeah. So by the early nineties, uh, Joseph had moved to DC and he was playing in a band called Victor Deluxe with drummer Christopher Farrell, uh, who had also been in a band uh, called Fine Day, who had a demo and a seven inch that was released by Sunspot Records in 92. Great seven inch and also on a comp with Admiral and Greyhouse. Oh, Greyhouse was so good too. Yeah. I don't have that comp though. Um, I'm wondering if Fine Day, were they named after the Jawbreaker song maybe? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that. Yeah. So I think, and also, I don't know, is Christopher like the one guy in Hoover who was actually from DC? That's a question. Probably, I don't know. Probably. Right. probably. So yeah, anyway, Victor is. Deluxe. So also in Victor Deluxe was previous end on end guest, Jeff Farina. Yeah. And after a couple of shows, uh, Jeff moved back to Boston where he would form karate and bassist Fred Erskine, who originally from Nebraska had been playing music you know, since he was about four years old, singing in punk bands for a few years at this point, although I don't think he was in any band quite as notable as the other three guys at this point. Although certainly what he and the rest of Hoover did after Hoover is a whole other whole other conversation and yeah, it would take huge, half a podcast he, just to yeah. name all the bands. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can and there are on the internet like these, you know, family trees of bands, and just like you could do an immense one for like, you know, Fugazi, Minor Threat, whatever. You mm-hmm. could do an immense family tree uh, for Hoover. So he joined the band and then Alex, uh, who had moved to DC from Arizona and moved in with Joseph, then joined the existing trio and that quartet became Hoover. I could not find where Hoover took their name from. When I think of Hoover, I think of the vacuum cleaner and they do use that Hoover logo. Me too. And there's a spoiler for, or not a spoiler, but that's the hook you'll have to listen to the interview to hear where they got their name. Yeah. I mean, and the other Hoover I think of was used in the Hoover Lincoln split seven inch. And that was president Herbert Hoover. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming it maybe comes from one of those two places, but let's all listen to the uh, <laughs> interview together. So Hoover became active sometime around the summer of 1992. Uh, these two songs on this set, Seven Inch were recorded in October of 1992 at WGNS with Jeff Turner. Uh, the record had two pressings of a thousand each. The first of which was the uh, the light green covers, and then the second pressing of a thousand had more of the tan beige covers. I found a couple of reviews. I'll read them, although I'm not really impressed by either of them. <laughs> but you know. I want to ask you now, like what your experience with this band was. And at the time that this band came out, I was very into like going to ABC, no real, a lot like that scene. And there was like, we were talking about earlier, we could talk about it more. Now this sort of new aesthetic, this new shift that was happening in hardcore and retrospectively, some people call it, I don't know, second wave emo or emo core or other names that, I've never yeah. even heard of or post hardcore, but whatever say, it was, hardcore, which you know, all these names, I don't know. I mean, 
there's a couple names thrown about at the time, but not really. There weren't all these strict sectarian, uh, you know, uh, branch offs of punk at the time. It was just hardcore or punk, you know. It wasn't, oh, well, they are whatever, you know. I, I don't know. Uh, Prague, Prague, emo country hard you know whatever <laughs> it, uh, saying that i can't think of all the different genres now but it, it, in retrospect everything gets ghettoized so much and you know it wasn't even necessarily like one distinct style of music no i mean there were bands that I, when i think about them that were very soft and melodic and bands that were you know very heavy and borderline you know crossover and from all over the country, you know, it wasn't even just one specific place in the country, but I think of record labels like Gravity and Ebolition and, um, you know, on the East Coast, like Mountain or those sort of labels who, you know, ushered in this sort of new era of hardcore that Council Hoover, and- yeah, Council and, and to me, Hoover were like a part of this new thing. And you could always trace back to the last thing that influences a new genre. And Discord, certainly through bands like, well, you know, the elephant in the room, Fugazi. Mm-hmm, um, and we'll talk about Hoover and that particular critique. Um, but I think Ignition, Ignition as well, um, sure. were a part of it. And, you know, I think if anything, if, if I could think of one other band that was on Discord that was sort of part of this new era, I think it was like Desiderata, really. Oh, interesting. Um, Oh, oh, sound-wise, sure. Sound-wise, aesthetically Uh speaking, you know, that Desiderata 7-inch was sort of the earliest Discord 7-inch that reminded me of something Mm -hmm. that Ebolition could have put out or something like that. And in fact, I think Desiderata were on a Ebolition uh, that give me back comp. And, you know, these bands drive like Jehu and Native Nod and Universal Order of Armageddon and Heroin. You know, bands like this really ushered in this sort of new era whether I'm right or wrong, I don't know, but I sort of think of Hoover as a part of this, this this original wave of this new style that came out of the 90s and really was so highly influential. And But when Hoover came out, to me, it was like there was a buzz about Hoover that was almost immediate. Like nobody had even heard this band yet, and everybody was anticipating when they played ABC. And it, to me, it just felt like almost out of nowhere that this happened. I guess it wasn't out of nowhere, but from my perspective, I was like 20 years old at the time. At that time, I was not familiar with Admiral or Wind of Change or Fine Day. So I don't know if it was just like an ex-members thing or something else that was going on. No, I think there was buzz for sure. Yeah. I mean, is that how you remember it? That it came almost out of nowhere, like before anything was even released? I don't know about before release, but I do remember when, like around when this was getting released and the split and all that, like they had a huge buzz. And just to to back up a couple uh, couple steps, as you're saying, the their influence sound wise and their their imprint on the bands a couple years down the line, I would say also uh, I would say them and the other Discord one I would say would be Nation of Ulysses both sound and especially aesthetic wise uh actually both bands honestly uh look wise you know literal physical appearance wise much less the 
the sound itself as well for both bands. Yeah, I mean, aesthetically, no doubt. And I think that we even brought this up when we talked about Nation of Ulysses. I just think of Nation of Ulysses as being that first little generation earlier. Mm. Yeah, they kind of had one leg in each each one. You're right. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but go ahead, you were saying. No, I mean, I just remember out of nowhere, and I know that I saw them at ABC. I think it was the only time I saw them. Um, but I saw them at ABC, and I don't know if it was 92, early 93. What I do know, it was definitely before the LP came out. And the place was like, packed and like the only thing they had out were like three songs they had this two song mm-hmm. seven inch and i think what, what even hit bigger was the split with lincoln mm-hmm. which was that, not on discord but that was a huge that was a huge split seven inch with i know yeah everybody i knew had that thing i think i had it and i don't know what happened to my copy but yeah 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 i still got it i mean it's 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 a great record but it's one song by each band it just felt like so little <laughs> created this <laughs> this massive buzz about them and they were you know in the great discord tradition they were only around for a couple of years and ended up spawning off a million other bands that continued to be very well known and influential you know in the underground kind of scene but yeah i mean this all happened before that lp which which seemed to be earth-shaking when it came out but you know, I don't have a specific moment when I even bought this seven inch, and I'm thinking it's mm-hmm. probably when I saw them. Okay, yeah, because I never saw them live. So, what was your uh, takeaway from the show you saw? Well, it's been thirty years, so <laughs> yes, it it's it's a little tough to put myself back into my twenty year old self to exactly remember. I certainly remembered Joe being very tall. And I remember Fred being not so tall. <laughs> very, very and, short. And as, yes. a, and as a bass player, though, I really remember Fred sort of being the focal point of the band, like kind of visually and like mm-hmm. musically too, where so many of their songs really, um, you know, at him is sort of the center point of the band. Mm-hmm. And certainly on one of the songs in this record, yeah, that's that's for sure. Of course. You know, yeah. where he carries the song. You know, the the multiple vocalists. I mean, I don't know if I made the association with Fugazi that everybody else on the planet seemed to make. I mean, mm-hmm. if there was one knock on Hoover, I mean, Hoover seemed much beloved when they came out. But if there was one knock on the band, you know, a lot of people called them like Fugazi clones, which. Yeah. I mean, they weren't. That seems just such an easy criticism to make. I don't know. Yeah. And. Not as uh, in retrospect, not as deservedly so as is at the time it felt like, because you know they weren't Fuel Gazi, you know Fuel was like the band that was really good, but also just one thousand percent indebted to Fugazi. Whereas Hoover, yes, you hear Fugazi in it, but you hear there's so many other elements that are a million miles away from Fugazi, so. Yeah, you know, in retrospect, it's weird to me that they got so pigeonholed that way, even though, yes, they were celebrated, but the detractors just wrote them off. And and I remember when I first heard them, you know, I was like, this is pretty good, but it's it's, it's like Fugazi Jr. And it really isn't. <laughs> you know, now, thank goodness I can say that these years later. I had no idea the, the Admiral connection either because I loved Admiral back then. And I probably would have been so much more open-minded at the time if I knew that. Yeah. And, and I mean, I could hear elements of Admiral 
um, in this band as you should, because, Mm -hmm. you know, of Joseph's, you know, obviously a major creative force in both bands. And I'm not so naive as to think that I don't hear any elements of Fugazi in the music because I definitely do. Um, You know, you have a, you know, a band with the same lineup. You have a band with multiple singers in Hoover's case, you have three guys who are singing. Yeah. Uh, You know, there are definitely elements that are in common, but I think the Fugazi clone idea is really, really unfair and really lazy. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't agree with that. Yes, I agree with your disagree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't see them. I was in Colorado at the time. I was aware with each record that came out, although I didn't actually even hear the LP till many years later. Uh, but those first couple seven inches and the split I heard. And yeah, I, you know, I was so much more judgmental as a music listener as most 20 something musicians, especially are at the time, because you're trying to make your mark and you're hearing music and even music that you probably love a couple years later or a couple years prior, you're going to be the the harshest critic to because you're just something has to blow you away or it, it's derivative and you know it's so unfair and just stupid and and masculine of a, a trait to have as a young young dumb and full of punk kid <laughs> so yeah. yeah so i i didn't give him a chance that i should have at the time and so it's nice to revisit it with fresh years and uh, mature-ish opinion. So it'll be fun yeah. to get into this thing. Yeah. So I, I have two reviews. I'll read them. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I'm, I'm not really a fan of uh, either one of these <laughs> reviews, but for posterity, I'll read them anyway. And, you know, it gives you, maybe it gives you a little clue as to what people, you know, people thought about them. So, the first review actually makes me think that maybe I saw them even before this record came out, but I'm not sure. So this first one comes from Radio Riot number 21, which was a fantastic one-page zine um, out of New York City. And this was March of 93. These guys were fucking awesome live. And I'll just interject and say that I am pretty sure that Hoover Show at ABC was their first show in New York City. So when he says these guys were fucking awesome live, I'm pretty sure... It's the show that I was at, but okay. I don't have a Hoover gigography to know for sure. So yeah. anyway, these guys were fucking awesome live, but something got lost in recording this live. They were something awesome here. They just sound like the rest of us coming out of DC these days. Boring emo with too much needless guitar solos. Yawn. Yeah, the I second. Don't, <laughs> I, don't, I, I like all the, all those points, except maybe the live things. I didn't see like every single thing of that. And line of that was terrible, and, and I yeah. don't agree with. Yeah. I, I, listen, I'm reading them. It doesn't mean I agree with them. I'm just, you know, I want to find the reviews that were written sure. at the time of release, just to get what the sense of when these things come out, and and how, yeah, history definitely changes our perceptions of of records as they get older. Mm-hmm. Um, although, you know, when it comes to Hoover, I don't know how many people really think of this Sevenich when they think about Hoover. I think they're really thinking about the LP and maybe some of the stuff that even came after that. Well, I think, yeah, I think the younger folks and the folks that, yeah, I think most people think of the LP and the young people, especially young people, meaning younger than me, younger than 50, probably that LP is what they think of the people that weren't around when they were together. 
I think of those first seven inches, like I said, because that was what was like alive to me at the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. So what what's the second so one? So the other one is from Maximum Rock and Roll 119. This is April 93. The reviewer is Dave Seifert. Well, this isn't how I'd spend $1,500 or so, but it's not <laughs> wasted money either. Sidecar Freddy drifts dangerously close to we're so intellectual moodiness, but then they turn up the guitar and start banging their heads against the wall. And Cable, well, I don't know. That's the end of it? That's it. <laughs> Listen, I, 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 I warned you. I warned you that these were not oh, these are not man. Pulitzer Prize winning reviews. No, not by a long yeah, shot. Not not by a long shot. So those are the reviews, and I think that uh, our reviews will be better than these reviews. I, I think although, we've quite a bar to. to <laughs> yeah, although you know, if it had been 1993, who knows? Maybe we would have reacted the same way. I know. I know. Ugh, I shudder to think, <laughs> not to mention a band. Uh, of, I'm wearing I'm wearing my Shutter to Think T-shirt. Are you really? I did I not even see that when I said yeah. that. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I do to think of my earliest Maximum Rock and Roll snarky write-off reviews of certain bands. So yeah, you're a good point. Yeah. Meanwhile, though, if you look sort of a month later or so, like those top ten lists that all the writers wrote, mm-hmm. Hoover was like on half of them. Oh, okay. For like Good. the Lincoln yeah. split and then the LP and live. So they got they got plenty of kudos from Maximum Rock and Roll as time went on. Good to hear. And they, you know, I don't know, like this came up on one of the last episodes. I don't know if, I guess not, Punk Planet wasn't quite around, but I always associate the Hoover crowd with like, say, the Punk Planet zine more than any other zine. <laughs> like, yeah, I think Punk Planet was like, Maybe ninety four. Yeah, that sounds right. Maybe maybe not that long after this record came out. Mm-hmm. Right, but just I the average Hoover fan of the time. I just see like the gas station jacket, uh, maybe a backpack, <laughs> uh, hair slicked back, or you know. Yeah. <laughs> I think we were talking about backpacks because at some point you mentioned uh, knapsack or something. And I was like, Yeah, that's right. I that's never right. gave the band a chance because I just have an image of like this person that used to annoy me at shows. That's funny. But anyhow, all right. Yeah. Uh you did good with your history. You got deeper than I would have been able to get, and you know, without this interview, God knows. So with that, let's uh let's drop the needle. Let's do it. Side one, side car. Ready, if you will. Uh, I'm ready to go.
Okay, we start with Sidecar Freddy, and yes, one of the longest intros of uh, <laughs> of a '92 record that I can think of. But I mean, really, it's not that long. It's it's like it's like it's like it's at least two minutes. Is it okay? I was going to say. I mean, before before everything really, really, I don't think there's any vocals on this for at least two and a half minutes. Yeah. So half, almost half this. It's a long song. I mean, this song is like over five minutes long. Okay. Um. So, like, at least half the song can be, you the know, chalked up guitars, to yeah. to intro. And if you count the sort of false ending mm-hmm. near the end of the song, where it's just guitar strumming, I mean, you're like half the song is sort of like could be accused by, you know, certain people maybe as as being a you know meandering and well maybe meandering is the wrong word but not like song proper yeah you know yeah and i don't dislike it by any means the song grew on me the intro doesn't feel so belabored as it did the first few times i listened to it like because now I, i just get in the zone of it but it does it does feel a little long for a record like live i could see it going on that long or even longer be, and being really creating the tension and creating the uh, atmosphere and it working i feel like the intro on, on this song proper the way it's recorded it, it it feels a little long uh and it's a weird transition into the next part it it kind of well actually once it gets loud the louder version of the intro is pretty cool, I think, uh, and I do like how the drums do that kind of, uh, I don't know what type of thing with the cymbals and come in with a very interesting way to to give the song some body once the guitars have been twinkling away for a bit, and of course, bass player at heart we are, you and I, Jeff, we gotta talk about that fucking extra note that, uh... <laughs> yeah. That he throws in to every time, and it kind of works, but it it it's so unnecessary. You know, I've got th- good things to say as well about his bass playing, but that note every time, I'm like, no, no, stop it, just play. You, you could leave a space there, and it would sound better. <laughs> it's like I don't know. Uh, it's weird because it's not like a busy bass line but it feels showy just to have that extra note it's like hey look what i can do <laughs> i mean what's your what's your take what do you think well you know one thing that it just occurred to me as we're now talking is that part of the artwork of the seven inch is all these things about like stereo sound yeah you yeah. know it's like these things that were like taken off of old records or old you know which was again which also sort of, a very 90s thing. Yeah. totally this is a totally 90s looking package with these mm-hmm. stereo symbols and everything but it occurred to me that to really appreciate i think the first minute of the song where it's just the two guitars is having that stereo really listening to that part on headphones you know it's pretty entrancing and it almost reminds me a little bit of this comparison might be a little a little a little overblown but it was the best i could do but almost like um fracture uh-huh. King Crimson, oh, know that song, uh-huh. yeah, where yeah. you you kind of have the two the two guitars playing at the same time and they're playing just different time out of, signatures out of sync with each other. Yeah, yeah, they're they're actually playing different time signatures, uh-huh. but once in a while they they match up, you know, right. because eventually they'll match up. 
And in a way, this is like almost like a like a rudimentary version of that. I was going to say like a, a teenage punk version of it, even though they might not be teenagers at this point. Yeah, but still, I mean, it's really interesting listening to it because there's pattern. Like, I wouldn't want to figure this song out, but that's not my job. <laughs> I'm not going to be playing in a Hoover cover band anytime soon. <laughs> so, but listening to those two guitars swirl around each other, you know, it really creates this sort of disorienting, sort of floating effect that the more I listened to it, the more I really enjoyed it. And it didn't just sound like, you know, a, a tinkering opening, like, which I feel like this kind of opening also was something that a lot of bands did around yeah. this time, you know? And well, yeah, th- there's this sort of, you know, tension is a word also to use a lot with Hoover because I feel like they're consciously doing things melodically, harmonically, rhythmically to throw the listener off a bit, which is okay. I think, you know, as long as it's musically interesting, I'm totally fine mm-hmm. with that. And as long as you resolve the tension at some point, otherwise it's just not a very satisfying thing, in my opinion, which they do. Could you say even relieve the pressure? Release the pressure, yes. <laughs> yes, relieve the pressure. Well, that, you know, that lyric, I, I suppose it could, I don't know that that they did it to purposely match up that section Cover of the, the song, music, kinda, but, yeah. it, but it does kind of work. Yeah. Um, but finally, like, in, in a sense, like, you're relieved from that by the bass and the I want to say drums, but it's really just cymbals at this point. Right. Yeah. Um, he's just playing on the cymbals, which is cool. And I think that could be over clever, but I think it sounds great. Like I love the little pattern. It it kind of has a swing to it. Yeah, the cymbal work is really good and almost kind of jazzy and feel a little bit. And you know, the, it's the bass and cymbals come in to finally like define the rhythm for you a little bit, right? But right, like you just said. Even then, like you think you're going to get some resolve, and, and it's finally sort of getting into this sort of six eight groove, you know, mm-hmm. da, 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 you know. But then, right, he changes up like the time signature for like one measure, and like creates this <laughs> yeah. extra, this little extra bass note in there mm-hmm. that completely throws you off. So now you're you're right back into, you know, into this sort of rhythmic tension that's going on with the song. I find it interesting. I think I like it. I think I like it more than you. Yeah. But yeah, it still takes like another minute before everything really kicks in. Yeah, yeah. Once they the drums really kick in. And yeah. the drums kick in. It's And the vocals are in now. Yeah. And it's weird though. It it's not a traditional like, you know, drum roll or snap or any type of traditional uh what do you call it, change into that heavy part. The image I have is of a wave coming in from the ocean. It just kind of soomps. Yeah. It, it just kind of slides in. It doesn't have any fanfare. It just kind of all of a sudden rolls in. And it, it, it kind of works versus I feel like when it does get to the part that's almost like the second section of the song, the heavy part. The Yeah, it's almost a totally different song. It is almost. It, it Part-wise, it sounds grafted together. It doesn't feel like, oh, okay, this logically makes any sense, even in a in a challenging way it just feels like uh we got to go somewhere from here i've got this riff all right sure throw that i mean even lyrically it doesn't really feel like connected Mm -hmm. necessarily to the first part of the song 
Right. Maybe it, maybe yeah. it was. Maybe it, it did start out as two two different songs that were sort of merged together. I mean, the second part of the song, the release, the pressure part is, you know, much heavier. It's much more. It's four four. You're 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 no longer have that six eight flow of an ocean kind of feel to it. Uh-huh. You know, now you're now you're playing like borderline hardcore. You know. Yeah, and and it, it's kind of chugging along, and it's it's got the kind of sing alongy, like really simple, like shouted release the pressure part with the backups that are eerily uh gee sounding definitely I, I even have that too it's it's hard not to make the fugazi comparison like on that specific yeah part, that, those backing vocals yeah. to release the pressure it definitely sounds like like a, a fugazi harmony so to speak right yeah and so i might sound like i don't like the song i actually really do especially by the time it gets to the end, the coda-ish, whatever long part where it just keeps repeating that, I- I'm all in by that point. And I gotta say, like, kind of like a couple other releases that I'd be hard-pressed to give you an example right this minute of Jeff Turner's, it seems like when he records 7 Inches versus LPs, he gives it opening band-style production versus... LPs, which he really takes the time to give this like really nice full sound. So, especially this side of the record, I feel like production wise is a mixed bag. I uh, think the guitars sound good, they sound bright, if a little thin in the intro, not their playing, but the tone sounds very seven inch. It doesn't sound, you know, full necessarily. The bass sounds all right, but sounds like he's plugged just direct in. I don't know if he is or not plugged without going through an amp. And the drums have that total thumbprint of early 90s DC or just punk in general with a little bit of reverb on every drum, you know. It sounds good, sounds big, but it's it especially in the mix of every other instrument, it it all feels a little production-wise disconnected like the guitars sound all right. Vocals sound good, bass you know, sounds okay, but sounds very, like I said, doesn't have a lot of depth. It just sounds very deep and uh, straight in. So it's it's a weird mix for a weird song, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I don't know. Nothing nothing about the production bothered me too much. But now that you mention it, I mean, I know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. It, it's not, you know, it's not a on-fire production job. Sometimes I just wonder if it's the format of the 7-inch itself. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes where sometimes your seven inches just don't sound as good as LPs, generally true. speaking. Anyway, no, that, that's a good point. Um, that's true. And it's we have nothing to compare it to because this song. Yeah, this is the only version you're going to get. It's yeah, it doesn't appear anywhere else. Like it's not even on Hoover's Bandcamp page. You know, like it's nowhere else. It was never appended to like the CD of uh-huh. the LP, like like some of the other seven inch tracks were. Yeah. So. We have nothing to compare it to, but you know, in general, I like the ride that this song takes me on, and it's sort of an interesting choice for side one, first song of your yeah. career to open up with a five and a half minute song that has all these different parts and you and know no takes vocals you, for half of it. Yeah, it takes you takes you on a journey. Yeah, you were saying an interesting way to introduce yourself to the world with this uh, song. A five minute long almost you know progressive kind of song that just Mm -hmm. takes you from this the most quiet you know gentle 
uh, hypnotic texture, you know, right through, you know. Like I could see at their shows, them playing this song, especially locally or something, and people singing along the whole like ending part. It's got that vibe to it. Shout along to. Yeah. I mean, it does a good job of manipulating the listener in, in the best possible way. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and, and building, you know, continually building up tension and adding elements and then, you know, taking a left turn. You have the kind of fake ending where it's just one of the guitars yeah. just kind of strumming and, right. you know, then getting back to the riff. And mm-hmm. there's a lot going on in this song. And they were, they were you know, it's an they, exercise they were, in dynamics. Absolutely. Oh, definitely. 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 And so so I dig it. My last note on it was, was a, a summary. I said, overall, not entirely successful as a song, but still worth the journey to arrive at the uh, rousing outro. I agree. Yeah. yeah. You have any thoughts on the uh, the lyrics, which are no, pretty you know, minimal here? Super minimal and, and super opaque. They rubbed me wrong at first couple of listens just because they are so almost willfully obscure. But as time went on, I kind of released that uh, judgment as well is with the pressure and, and uh, can just appreciate it as an impressionistic uh, thing where the words mean less than the, the emotion behind them and, and just kind of paint these images without necessarily having to be connected to this, to a story even. Yeah. I mean, I mean the first half feels like, you know, it could be about someone feels helpless and alone um, you know, this kind of images of like quicksand, you mm. know, his feet mm. were caught in the sand, no more running, no one to take his hand, you know, sort of no one to assist in a time of great need, you know, release the pressure. It's crushing my head. It just feels like, yeah, it just feels like two lines sort of taken out of another song that just kind of <laughs> sound cool. But I don't know. Yeah. I want to know who Sidecar Freddy is. Like, I feel like that's a very specific name well, and nickname, you know? Luckily, uh, we'll get the answer to that as well. Oh, I can't wait! Yeah. yeah, like it sounds like it sounds like like somebody like uh, you know in Goodfellas, like with their uh, you know, <laughs> right? You know, yeah, it's Jimmy the Lip, and there's a uh, sidecar Freddy. You know, I don't that's know. That's funny. I could see him being a character in like yeah, yeah, that or a Tom Waits song, or uh, even yeah. a, a Girls Against Boys type of character or something. Yeah, or even like a troubadour, like some. A troubadour, <laughs> you know, a troubadour, like oh, this sidecar Freddy, you know, like uh, well, that's I funny. don't know, I don't know. Sure, all right. <laughs> well, then we flip the script, flip the seven inch to Hable, which is as a title, as generically '90s as you can get as well. <laughs> Just a one word, a one word, a one word cable, yeah, a one word and a. Uh, image of like some kind of tool or some kind of uh utilitarian thing you know <laughs> but but in this case i think the lyrics of the song are literally about cable so oh i kind of i, Jesus. Kind of, I, I didn't kind of think appreciate... about the tv i was i always think of a court like a guitar cable that's so funny yeah i yeah. mean i mean i you know so in this in this in this particular instance right <laughs> it, i actually i actually appreciate the song title is is not far afield um is a perfectly legitimate uh song title for this song okay okay yes yeah i mean and the lyrics are a little more easy to to gain purchase on uh and a little more outwardly focused it didn't take long for this song to get its hooks in me its groove is is just 
irresistible. It, it sounds super confident. Whereas uh, I thought Sidecar Freddy sounds good, but it sounds like a band finding its feet. Whereas this song sounds like they're communicating, they're they're playing their parts and doing it with with style and verve. It's kind of jazzy. It's got the jazziness of like karate, but the uh, post-punky DC-ish thing of hot bodygram grafted together, especially in the vocals and the bass playing, I feel like. What's your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so I think that um, this song, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the song is definitely way more immediate, way more digestible, um, Punchy, just like just yeah. like just like the lyrics are. I mean, by the time this song ends, like you're only just getting into the main part of Sidecore Freddy. <laughs> like this song yeah, is like sure. half the amount of time. So it's definitely way more direct. I mean, that that immediate, that guitar, right? It's almost a little funky, yeah. that very distinctive uh, guitar motif that travels with us through the entire length of the song. So I think the song is much more likable. I think it's much more direct. I don't think it's as interesting really, um, as wow. Sidecar Freddy. See, I do, man. I think it's everything about it successful, even the production, whereas... Maybe because Sycar Freddy is so ambitious, it's almost their their reaches. What is what's the word? Uh, are the phrase their reach not extends? Their reach outweighs their grasp. Whatever the anyway, what they wanted to do with Sycar Freddy, I feel like is not what got captured on Sycar Freddy. Whereas Cable feels like they could have wrote this in the moment as a jam and turned it into something that was really interesting because everyone's playing like you said off of this kind of funky jazzy riff but really punchy and it everybody's playing counterpoint to everyone else's uh parts on it and there's even that weird kind of guitar solo i mean not really it's just a rhythmic kind of little i like thing. it though. i, I, I like, do too i like the guitar solo of the song yeah and i i know what you're playing it does feel like a jam at times because you have one guitar who's playing you know clearly here's a riff i'm just gonna mm -hmm. jam on this riff I think what the other guitar is doing, which is easily overlooked the first or second time you hear the song because you're just so focused on the groove of the rhythm section and the groove of that guitar part. But what the other guitar is doing is really interesting and is constantly sort of changing what he's doing. Yeah. Um, and I don't know which guitar, by the way. I, I'm just saying this guitar, that guitar, because I don't know who's playing what. Yeah. Um, but what the other guitar is doing is very interesting and and seems to not really always settle into a specific part, mm -hmm. but it's just playing these little like rhythmic answers almost to the, it's almost like a little bit of a conversation going on where yeah, one guitar is saying this thing and then this other guitar kind of is having different responses every time. Like having commentary to it and yeah, the bass is doing it too. Like Sure. I, and I there's little... You know, there's little pops and pings and, you know, again, <laughs> sort of of that style that, that you heard a lot and not, again, not totally un esque to be honest with you, the way the two guitars interplay. But I wouldn't confuse it for a Fugazi song. No, not at all, because it, it's not really the type of thing Ian would play. I could see Guy playing off of something like this, but it's way too jazzy for something Ian would do at that time anyway. Yeah, you play it slightly jazzier later, but you know, you, not till for me, Cork. Do I hear like a jazzy Ian type of vibe? So I mean, for this time, like I said, that even the guitar sound, like that rhythm guitar, which I think is Joe, 
has a very Jeff Farina-esque type of vibe to the type of riff, minus all the pyrotechnic uh, flurries that Jeff Farina would throw in, you know? Mm. I I like the song, and I think that and what the band, about the, the whole kill? kill? Yeah, no, again, you could really see, catchy. and you and made for an audience, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, made for an audience is definitely something to wrap your head around, and you're almost thankful when Hoover does that for you, right? Because, <laughs> like I said, tension isn't really effective if that's all you do. Like, you need mm-hmm. to release, relieve that tension at some point with something that's grounded you could focus on, you know, and parts yeah. like that. Uh-huh. You know, like the second half of Sidecar Freddy is like that. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the kill kill part. You don't even know what vocals, what the lyrics were preceding that line. All you hear is kill, <laughs> kill, and, yep, and yep. you sing along to it because that's just what you do. I like the song, and and I I totally get why probably why you like it more than the first side. And listen, the band themselves yeah, probably like the song, song more. Right, this <laughs> yeah. song ends up on the LP. Um, I did not A B the songs back to back, no? but what okay. I recall, um, I did. The LP has some brass on it, um, courtesy of Fred, I think. Yep, it has a little extra uh, trill of a riff that mm-hmm. that ends every phrase that this doesn't have, and it also, yeah, it has the uh, has the horn on it, which is nice. And additionally, I think it is the seven inch version of the song that's on the twenty years of Discord box mm-hmm. set. Oh, okay. So the band or whoever put that together or made these decisions, the band themselves clearly seemed to favor this song. Yeah. Um, you know, over over the other one too. So maybe it's just me. But I just I like the journey of of Sidecar Freddy. Whereas <laughs> this just feels, you know, this feels more compact. It feels more, you know, I but I, I know what you're saying. And and we've had uh, we've talked about this with other songs in other bands' catalogs that felt like, well, the idea is really good and clever, but they just hadn't figured out exactly how to like execute Ex- this yet. Yeah, sure. You know, like we talked about that, not to bring them up yet again, but like, remember there was like an early Fugazi song, maybe on Seven Songs, that was maybe even on Margin Walker, where we like commended the. Um, Mm, I think it was Margin commended, Walker. Sure. Yeah, like the last song there or whatever. Yep. We really commended the effort on it and everything like that. But we feel like it's something they would get better at over time. And uh probably the same is true for this. But I like mm. the attempt and the more I listen to it, the the more it kind of grew on me. Interesting. But, That's so interesting. We had the same kind of general thoughts about the different songs though. What I liked and didn't like about Sidecar Freddy is what you liked and didn't like about uh cable. Yeah. But I, I like both songs. I mean, I'm, you know, I am a Hoover fan. I like this record. I liked it when it came out. I like it now. <laughs> and I like it more now in a way because I've yeah. just, I've been away from it for so long, you know? Sure. This was a very pleasant homework assignment for me. In Sidecar Freddy. Yeah. That, that song, it feel, it's very airy. That's of the air. Whereas the element on this side would be the earth. I feel like it's very, uh, like you said, it's just so compact, sinewy, and uh, yeah, just punchy. So yeah, it's just two flavors, two great tastes that go great together. Very good. I I mean, I think the lyrics to Cable are worth talking about. Yeah. Wow. Sure. What you got? Well, I mean, so the song definitely seems to be about 
you know, media, media right. manipulation and, <laughs> and, and, and specifically television <laughs> right. and television and how, you know, television has, uh, you know, through the guise of entertainment can be dangerous and, and, and um, manipulating. What I find really interesting about the lyrics is that they can be read through the perspective of a person who is transfixed by television and, and sort of manipulated into some sort of, you know, belief or beliefs. But I feel like the lyrics are also interesting because they could also be read from the perspective of the television itself. Hmm. Like the lines, you know, let me turn your knobs, let me switch the dial, let me tune into one mind. Like in a way, yeah, that could be the person manipulating the television, but it could also be like, let you know, we also say, let me turn your knobs, you know, mm, let me mm-hmm. let me manipulate you, you know, coming from like an anthropomorphic television or something like that. And I think um, I kind of read the lyrics both ways and intended or not, I don't know, but that's kind of how I I looked at them. It's it's evocative. The lyrics, even though also very short and I guess sweet, uh, I don't know. They bring more up for me, other than like you said, the phrase, the last phrase of uh, "Sidecar Freddy" and and just the name "Sidecar Freddy." But what what do you make of this? The line "Let me tune in to one mind so I can kill." I guess the, just the brainwashing element or, or the manipulation. But. Yeah, and again, I think I think it could be taken both ways. If you if you're taking it from the point of view of a person watching TV, you know, let me tune into one mind. Like, let me tune into maybe you know one channel or one, especially with cable TV, right? With cable TV came a a diversification, especially when it came to news, mm-hmm. uh, the different types of channels you could watch. I mean, growing up, you know, in the seventies. You basically only had, you know, four or five news stations on mainstream television that would sort of feed you. Everyone would sort of come at things from the same the same initial set of facts with the advent of cable TV. You know, you now had, well, if you believe this way, you could go over to this channel. And if you believe this, you can go over to that channel and look and and sort of, you know, people were dialing into one particular perspective at the ignorance of other perspectives. Um, um, which it was way more telescoped in the internet age, where yeah. you're just but from fed the t- everything. But if this song is being sung by the TV, <laughs> right? Yeah. Then let me tune into one mind, meaning one individual. You know, because oh, uh, all it takes, okay. all it takes, is one individual to go out and kill. You know, uh-huh. or to mass murder, or to you know take some agenda to some to some other violent level or something. Hmm. I mean, this, 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 I mean, the, the, the language of the song is violence. Yeah, it is. I've I mean, been there's... programmed to kill. Let me tune into right. one mind so I can kill. So I can kill. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm probably not giving the most eloquent interpretation <laughs> of, of the song, but, you know, I feel like there's definitely something meaty to sort of get out of it. Yeah. Even though it's not a whole lot of words. No, for sure. I agree. I, I think lyrically it, it's even more successful than uh, Sidecar Freddy. If less On that, journey, I will like agree. I will certainly agree with that. Yeah. yeah. As I say, I don't know why, too, that I, I think that the production just works better. Maybe because there's less high end guitar stuff going on. So it's less thin. It's, it, it, it sounds pretty meaty on this side, I feel like. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, all right. Well, why don't we talk about the <laughs> very 90s graphics on this thing? 
definitely very very 90s you know the cover of his is a drawing it's credited to s becker i have no idea who that is i know there's no other credits for s becker i looked i think it's not unlike the artwork on the first admiral seven inch as well hmm. a kind of elongated body of somebody yeah and not necessarily directly related to anything yeah on the record it's on the record itself which was again a very kind of 90s thing to do you know and i almost you know i wonder if this was an original piece of art made for this seven inch or not because there's like a copyright symbol next to the name s becker <laughs> yeah, on the cover so i yeah. you know questions abound i mean the other parts of it the whole stereo seemed to be copied out of some sort of you know book or some old record or mm-hmm. right that doesn't seem like an invention for the record specifically no not at all for absolutely and the layout whether it's taken from a record or a book looks very with the song titles and the bottom and stuff to the record label looks very nation Ulysses to me yeah. yeah yeah it it definitely feels like 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 a 90s a 90s hardcore seven inch um <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the photo, which is, you know, hard to discern what's going on, of course, other than other than Fred, I guess. Nice base, by the way. I know. Um, photo by Pat Graham, mm-hmm. uh, another DC transplant uh, by way of Milwaukee. And his, his uh, photographs certainly show up all over the place. Oh, yeah. He was a great um, photographer. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, he took the photo that's on the record label of Novelty. Okay. And he also took one of the photos. I'm not sure which one. Um, I tend to think it's probably the out of focus one of, uh, I think maybe the band on uh, Rainbows from Adams. Right. Um, so, yeah, I can't remember. I, that does look like his style. Yeah. He also, I believe, took that picture that I can't stop talking about of uh, Chris Thompson with the walker singing mm. while he's holding onto a walker. So. so so yeah so pretty well known photographer but yeah i mean you know cool graphics stuff to look at yeah i think you know? so and and even the record labels are very 90s as well but well done i think i think they're cool enough it's it's the kind of logo that's it's just begs to be on a uh back of a dress shirt or a, a jacket or something you know yeah now that though you're talking about the inner labels the ones on the record label itself right now is yeah. that the is that the hoover logo like the appliance company logo? I, you know i feel like it is i i should have i guess looked that up but i it feels super familiar and i think that's why but like i said uh i don't want to say where they got the name if that's where they got their name because i want you to hear the interview okay well I am on the Hoover Company's Wikipedia page as we speak. <laughs> uh-huh. And the logo is clearly is clearly the logo that is uh ah. maybe that's why it's only used on the seven inch, because yeah. they would probably get in trouble if they kept it. Yeah. That. So the seven inch clearly, yes, without any doubt, is is being used on those label covers. So okay. okay. the reference is there. Yeah, the truth is out there. Mm. Okay. And there's not much in the way of thanks or anything like that which is also very well i don't know is that 90s i feel like 90s it was either no thanks or it was or like or like half a, a, half yeah a like a huge, to. Yeah. you know small type lyrics <laughs> yeah yeah so anyway not bad graphics very 90s but cool i think and so now we get to the part jeff 
that you initiated on this show way yeah. back when. Really, where... my only genuinely good contribution to <laughs> Jesus the on. show. No, not at all. That's not true at all. Uh, but it, it is a become a, a fan favorite. It's always fun to see patrons on our Discord site, uh, our Discord server, I should say, after they listen to the episode, post their, where their records live. So with that, what kind of uh, real estate we talk? And for you, Jeff. Yeah. What, you know, the, other, the other thing that this revealed, the segment revealed, is the totally weird way that some people... <laughs> organize their shit oh like, my god yeah you're right you know i don't want to mention any names drew but nope. you know yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> so oh, Jesus. uh okay so on one side we have a seven inch something that's probably not in your collection <laughs> Vinny hooligans whoa and this is the this is the uh late nights seven inch which came out on not like you records which by the way in a little bit of self-promotion put out the last too many voices record as well Oh, okay. And uh Vinny Vinny is a he is from New York. He is from here. Um with Vinny, a name like that, he better be. Vinny Hooligans. Yeah, I think this is the only record he's put out under this name, but I think now it's like Vinny and the Hooligans. Hmm. Um, but Vinny Hooligans, uh, and the late great Vinny Value does play drums on this, but he is not the Vinny that is Vinny Hooligans. Vinny Hooligans is actually Vinny Panza, who is known as a drummer although he plays guitar and sings and writes all the songs on this. Mm. Uh, he played drums for Youth of Today in really? the 2010s before Sammy rejoined the band. Um, I think he still plays in Shelter when mm. they do stuff, and he's in a band with John Purcell right now called Values Here. Right. Oh, he's in that. Okay. He's in that band. He also plays in Locked Inside. Mm. So okay. uh, he's a very, very busy as a drummer, but this is kind of his solo thing, and it's not as... Uh, it's not as hardcore as, as those bands. It's pretty melodic. I see like comparisons to sort of latter day bouncing souls. Mm. Eh, I don't, okay. I'm not sure about that comparison, but <laughs> it's pretty good. And the lyrics are also pretty New York centric, which I like. Yeah. The second cool. seven inch uh, is definitely a band, you know, it's definitely a band we have mentioned on the show before. And I think this is either their first or second seven inch. And that's Horace Pinker. Oh, okay. The, uh, the Knives, Guns, and Ammunition 7-inch. Cool. 1992, Rhetoric Records. And uh, I don't have everything by these guys by any stretch, but I have a couple of their early records. And this one's good. Four pretty catchy songs, you know, kind of unique vocals, but, mm -hmm. you know, good melodic three-piece band. Got to see them one time. Oh. I think they were from Arizona. Uh, yes, they were. So, so Yep. And uh, yeah, good stuff. So I figured this this would probably be a little more in your wheelhouse. Oh, for sure. Yeah, we we did part of a tour with them, and I always liked his guitar style too. Just that kind of fa it's not pop punk, it's poppy, it's catchy, but there's like fast. Uh, it's like almost like a fast mix of emo y stuff with pop punky energy. Yeah, they kind of go well with with both bands. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, cool. both, both styles of bands, yeah. Right. I know. I don't... Well, I guess you've not done the last a number of episodes, but, man, I was surprised how many records out I had to go to find Neighbors for this thing because I was like, nope, I've already talked about that band. Nope, that band. Nope, that band. <laughs> so I don't know. Well, we haven't done Hoover yet, so how could that even be? Uh, well, because what do we do? Holy Rollers? 
We did. Oh, uh, that's close. Yeah, that's close. We also did. There has to be some other H's because there. I had to go three or four out. But anyhow, so with that said, uh, I had to go out all the way out of H in the first side of it to go to uh, Guided by Voices for their seven-inch "I Am a Scientist," uh, which is great. Probably the first song I heard by them actually. Also has "Curse of the Black Ass Buffalo" on it, and. Uh, do the Earth, another great song, and Planet's Own Brand. Robert Pollard was on fire at this point. Just was writing so many damn songs, and yeah. almost it's every probably one like of them one was... of yeah, it's like one of twenty thousand seven inches. They probably oh yeah, you could fill a a seven inch box of nothing but guided by voices records easily. That's so funny. Yeah, you totally could. Yep. And so on uh, on the other side of Hoover would live. Again, going out a couple, the classic, classic, one of my all-time favorite two songs, Seven Inches, which I know is one of your, has to better be one of yours. It is. The Husker Du makes no sense at all. Love is all around, Seven Inch. I got this probably, it had to be when it came out. Yeah, April 85 is when it was recorded, it says, mixed and recorded. Yeah, this thing just blew me away. I played it so much, too. Both songs. Just fucking amazing. Yeah, I mean, well, love is all around. Is Husker Du doing, doing a, the Mary a terrific Tyler cover? Moore. Yeah, uh, you know, and makes no sense at all. Is one of what probably the top three best known Husker Du songs. I mean, yeah. you know, a masterpiece of songwriting. And yeah, yeah, just, so good. I mean, yeah. If there's anything close to the to talk about the Beatles and the '80s punk scene. Husker Du makes no sense at all would have to be one of those songs right up there. Oh yeah. As far as songwriting. Yeah. Well, that's some good company. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it really is. Both really uh song oriented bands too. That's funny. Mm-hmm. Uh so yeah, that's where mine lives. And now let's talk to this this was I don't know why it was surprising. I guess because I'd never talked to him and never met him even. A surprisingly long interview that felt like it went by in a flash and i we could have talked we probably would have talked another hour or two longer even than we did if uh it wasn't getting late at that point and the conversation spilled over into the texting and messaging you know the next so you're bffs now we're we're, we are man it's a bromance uh going on that's beautiful (laughs) that's beautiful i i liked this record before i talked to joe seeing what a, a genuine human being and like someone who's living the punk rock ethos to this day is the older guy like that always impresses me more than someone with a back catalog of great material that's just living off the past he's living every element of his life with you know what informed him over the punk rock philosophy so that didn't hurt as well well let's hear it yeah, let's let's talk to you. Can't Joe. keep it all to yourself.
thanks for being on the show, Joe McRedman, for the first time, hopefully not the last. Hey, Brian, how are you? Doing well, doing well this Saturday morning. Let's go way back. Let's start all the way at the beginning. What, for you, was the first music that made your ears prick up? What was it that, uh, it doesn't have to be punk rock, what was it that made you realize how important music was? Uh, I feel like it's always been there. My mom had a kind of substantial box of 45s from the 60s. I was born in 68, so my earliest, earliest memories is playing her 45s on a little Fisher-Price plastic turntable, you know, like a little suitcase turntable. Oh, yeah. I had one of those. And then we had a home stereo that my dad built from a kit that with his guidance, eventually we were allowed to touch, <laughs> you know, so I think it actually went into my bedroom as I got slightly older. I had his little stereo system that he built. So she had all the early Beatles, 45s, the kinks. You really got me rolling stones um, as tears go by and a whole bunch of other stuff, probably a box of like at least 145s. Um, And then as far as recording, my dad had a little tape recorder and I recall recording, uh, I don't know if you remember the French song Alouette, Um, we would uh, record ourselves singing that, which I still have a cassette copy of us as kids, me and my brother and sister singing Alouette uh, into into the little microphone. So as I got older, probably like mid to late 70s. Sometime in the, it's probably like later 70s, we would shop at Kmart a lot. And they had a record rack of all the top 100 hits. Mm-hmm. And our mom would let, and I were probably like a dollar. I think it was like 99 cents a single. And mom would let us buy one usually on our shopping trip there. So my first two memorable 45s were, Mr. Blue Sky by ELO was on the radio at the time. So whenever that was out, 76, 77, something like that, which I would have been, you know, eight or nine. And then uh, what year did Star Wars come out? Was that? That was 77. 77. So there was a 45 called Star Wars theme, but it was like a funky version. The the disco one. Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) the the B side, the song was called Funk. Mm -hmm. And I was really attracted to the b-side i played over and over again i love the star wars theme but i always played funk um not really knowing the history of funk music but i like that song a lot and i always associated mr blue sky with star wars for some reason because i was listening to those 245s over and over again and then i started asking like shortly after that probably between 10 and 12 I started asking for cassettes for my birthday and Christmas. And I got into through, oddly enough, through being in Boy Scouts, I got introduced to ACDC and (laughs) and Kiss. Kiss first. Maybe it was the outfit. Yeah, it might have (laughs) been. I know it was Kiss first, you know, that typical. Oh, sure. You know, when you're 11 years old. You have to be. Especially in the 70s. If we'd go to the mall, my mom would drop us off at the newsstand and I'd look at all the covers of the wrestling magazines that had you know it was blood and guts and um people with mask on it and mm-hmm. you didn't know anything about these people and kiss kind of fit into that 
with me because they were not unmasked yet. So you didn't know who they yeah. were. There was a lot of blood with Gene Simmons. So for an 11 year old boy in the seventies, that was like not, not great for your parents, but for you, that was like, oh, this yeah. is what I want to hear. I want to know more about it. That was your mana. Yeah. Right. And then followed by somebody in Boy Scouts introduced me to ACDC. I think we were on a weekend camping trip and someone brought a, a boom box and played, um, hell's bells at midnight at midnight <laughs> yeah at midnight um out in the woods somewhere and just the beginning of those bells tolling you know was super spooky so i got really in the acdc and i and at that time i mean back in black this is probably now 1980 back in black had just come out and was on back in black and uh, you shook me all night long we're on the radio and i was really confused because i'm hearing that singer and i asked for the cassettes leading up to that and it was a totally different singer and like yeah. i didn't really know anything about how bands worked so it was really really confusing to me that these two different guys sounded completely different and uh, you know there was a whole right. another history leading up to this record so that's the start a little bit of country music like i had the soundtrack to urban cowboy i was really into mm -hmm. i saw the oak ridge boys on a boy scout oh, trip wow. <laughs> that sentence is classic right <laughs> I mean, i've looked it up because it was it was like the 200 i think it was the 200 or 250th boy scout jamboree <laughs> and i happened to be there and they got the oak ridge boys were the headlining band so i got to see and they were Elvira. Yeah, yeah they were exactly. on radio yeah they were huge back then yeah i got i gotta just throw in because you're just lighting up all these memories in my brain too saying because i'm two years behind you i believe and uh, same thing, Kmart was my introduction. My parents made the mistake when I was seven, so same year, 77, of saying, pick any two albums, we'll buy you those to listen to at home. So I bought two double albums because I was like, ooh, I get oh, yeah. more music this yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. So I got the Kiss Alive 2, and I got a Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know both were hugely important you're big on that great the grease soundtrack yeah that's sure. where i mean that i thought about this a lot because it kind of directly led to my interest in punk rock shortly after but it started for me i think with visually with the movie the lords of flatbush with henry oh, winkler yeah. and sylvester stallone yeah right and uh, i think that came out in 74 and you know they all had leather jackets and grease back hair and blue jeans Mm -hmm. And I like that look. And I remember we started a gang in elementary school called Lords of West Hanover. And we were, you know, our goal was to rule the playground um, <laughs> in like third grade or whatever I was in at the time. Yeah. And um, probably you know, I'd start wearing like grade. white t-shirts with cut off <laughs> sleeves or rolled up sleeves. And I didn't have a um, leather jacket at that age, but my dad had a tan windbreaker. So shortly after that, Happy Days came out and the first season Fonzie wore a tan windbreaker. So I would wear that windbreaker, you know, his large adult size starting in like third or fourth grade, which, you know, that style windbreaker kind of became identified with DC in the 80s. A lot of, uh, I think just because it was, you know, utilitarian and ubiquitous, it was in every Sears and every department store sold blue and tan some windbreakers windbreakers right. sure so i always you know wore my dad starting from about 1974 and then grease came out and again leather jackets and t-shirts 
and and at the same time, I got a lot of those KTEL greatest hits records, oh, yeah. which had some obscure music. Like I, that's how I first heard Surfing Bird by the Trashmen and odd songs like that. Yeah. So great for that, for sure. You get yeah. all those garage nugget or one-off songs that exactly, you yeah. never hear otherwise. Yeah. yeah. So music was always there. And then I had a friend, we started becoming friends in seventh grade. His parents were divorced. So in the summer, he'd go to work, he'd stay with his dad in Virginia Beach and, um, or it might have been Ocean City, actually. And he'd be gone in the summer and then come back for the school year. And we stayed friends, seventh, eighth, ninth grade. And I, th- I think it was eighth grade, some punk rockers started popping up in our junior high school. It was like four guys, you know, that all of a sudden had normal haircuts and all of a sudden then they, um, had Next spiked hair Monday, all this. Yeah, right. yeah, sure. He had spiked hair and maybe a leather jacket and looked a little bit different. And that would have been eighth grade for me would have been 1981. And it, you know, it was shocking, especially I was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania at the time. So it was kind of, and we were like out between Harrisburg and Hershey. So it was kind of rural a little bit like suburb. They were building suburbs on places that had been farms like the year before. So it was, not very well accepted up there you know if you had everybody be like oh did you stick your finger in a light socket Mm -hmm. um and you get beat up so i saw it in eighth grade and then in ninth grade uh my friend is that i'm talking about is eric vermilion he ended up playing in bands he was in gumball with the guys from the velvet monkeys sure and he was in the stump wizards in pennsylvania in the 80s so he came back at the beginning of the ninth grade school year and he was interested in punk rock. And I remember I was over at his house at his parents' house and he showed me the first Ramones record and I saw the leather jackets and I was like, <laughs> Oh, it's the Lords of Lords Flatbush. But I didn't understand their haircuts because they had like those sixties um, nuggets, you know, garage band haircuts. Right. And uh, I was really confused and the torn jeans was something like, why would anybody want to wear jeans that shredded, you know, like, <laughs> nobody was selling those yet, you know, mm-hmm. in the, in those, those trash sneakers. So I was like, what am I looking at? And then he played the record for me and I thought it was the fastest music I ever heard in my life, which was funny thinking about what I heard next, but <laughs> sure. I thought the Ramones like that is really fast and I didn't really understand what was going on, but I liked it. And um, whatever he was starting to listen to, I'd listen to. So probably next would be The Police and The Clash and mm-hmm. Sex Pistols eventually. But really shortly after, within, because I think it, 85, 86, so it would have been, I think, 82, 83. So it would have been fall of 82. Within a few months, he had gotten out of step by minor threat. And I remember looking at that and seeing Ian shaved head, which was kind of new. Like, why would anybody shave their head? That was kind of new to me. And that wasn't happening in punk rock in Harrisburg quite yet. You know, that I saw we still were dealing with spiked hair. I didn't even know if we got the Mohawks yet, <laughs> um, which we should be calling Pawnee haircuts, not Mohawks, because Mohawks didn't, didn't actually cut their hair like that. But that's another story. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we could have an interview about that some other time. That's but, um well, and I mean, it's interesting you're talking about these cultural signifiers that draw you in, the implication visually on an intuitive level resonate for 
you know, whatever reason. And that's like a whole nother thread you could pull about. Yeah. I mean, the Mohawks had their own kind of haircut, but it wasn't what we call a Mohawk or a Mohican. And neither mm-hmm. of those um, peoples had what we think of as a Mohawk, but the Pawnee did. Interesting. Yeah. Well, um, and leave it to uh, yeah, the imperialist white historians to get everything wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, sorry. So, so back, back to minor threat. I listened to Out of Step. That's what I heard first. I didn't hear the singles. I couldn't believe how fast that was. And, and the thing that stood out is how much Ian cursed on that record. Yeah, There's a lot yeah. of fuck. And, uh, exactly. I, I was real. I was like shocked because I'd never heard that in any music before. The Sex Pistols weren't really doing it. He might have said, I think he said, like, fuck this and fuck that um, uh-huh. on something. But it was really shocking that it was like in every song, every other line in, in a Minor Threat song. And that fast. And more personal lyrics like it wasn't about the queen or the president it was about his friends you know and and you know kind of like relationships you know i didn't know anything about the background of dc music at that point that that's just the first thing that i heard so that kind of opened up i think right after that one of the guys that i said turned punk rock in eighth grade by ninth grade though a couple of those guys got into rockabilly because that's when 1982 is when stray cats were finally popular in the United States and on the radio, even though they had been working on it for like five years before that. So the guy, one of the guys that went rock rockabilly Deuce Gibb, he sold me his um, circle jerks wild in the streets record for $5. And that was the first hardcore record I bought. And the first punk rock record I bought with my own money was the generation X record, first generation X record. And that was all about the same time, 1982. And then it just, I kind of went crazy from there, you know, either taping records from Eric or buying records. Um, we had a local record store. I could, It was a couple of years later because I didn't have a car, of course, till I was 17. So I was kind of limited to getting out to both shows and record stores because we were, like I said, we weren't even in Hershey. We were like, you know, there's a cornfield behind my house. So oh, wow. I couldn't really get anywhere. Did you do, had you found fanzines by that point to be able to order? Yeah, flip flip side. And I mean, that became important because two of the issues that still stand out and I still have those copies are, there was one that did a, like a, I think it was like a two-pager on Husker Du. I remember the beginning of the article because it said, you know, the singer or the guitar player, Bob Mould, had a flying V guitar that was like, you know strapped all the way down to his knees and he touched the tuning pegs to the microphone to make sure he wasn't going to get electrocuted and the bass player had a handlebar mustache and kept on leaping into the air and uh, you know the drummer is playing with a fury and, and within that year too. i heard the first husker do i heard was metal circus and i had a, i made a cassette with metal circus on one side and the freezes landed a loss on the other listen to that all the time not really thinking about i think about it a lot now but to me like between mission of burma which would be maybe a little bit before that who's produced metal circus and then the faith subject to change that kind of led directly to you know the next whatever years of music as as Mm -hmm. far you know what we're thinking of is emo core or yeah you know kind of hardcore but a little bit more melodic 
Exactly. Once the hardcore kids started expressing themselves outside of the buzzsaw guitar stuff. Yeah, exactly. When was it in this timeline that you decided that you, you know, took up the DIY thing and decided, hey, I can do this? Well, yeah, Eric and I did a little short-lived band with another friend of ours called the Pawns of Society, where we just made like boombox recordings, having no idea about recording studios. And, you know, we didn't know anybody that was recording. And so we'd write songs and then press, you know, record on the boombox and be like, that's our band. (laughs) And then he actually started playing in in some bands while in high school. So I was kind of following on his coattails as far as, oh, you go to a guitar shop to get a guitar. This is all the different kind of guitars there are. Uh, but I didn't play. My first serious band was right after I graduated. There was a show right before I graduated high school in 1980, May 1986. Beefeater played in downtown Harrisburg, and I had a car, so I brought a couple of my friends. And for Harrisburg, that was a huge show. Like there, I think there had been a lull in shows, and everybody came out from you know harrisburg's on a river so there's east shore kids and west shore kids and everybody came to that show and probably expecting some kind of earlier dc hardcore and they get beef eater yeah i don't even know you know people knew what it was going to be like i mean i they I, the first record was out i think this is house burning down period oh, okay. maybe well, sure. before that came out but those songs yeah and the two opening bands one was a local band that had been around since the late 70s called the the late teens so they were older guys and that was like kind of more traditional punk rock pre-hardcore and then a york band called second crisis that was more like 1986 style hardcore and then beef eater played and i remember we were going you know we're all very punk rock spiked hair but then you know it's full-on mohawks leather jackets trench coats combat boots motorcycle boots all that we went nuts slam dancing. And I remember Tomas in between songs saying, how could you slam dance when people are starving in Ethiopia? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> we were like, the next song kicked in and we went even more nuts than the previous song, you know, like tore the room apart, jump, you know, it was in a little disco in a shopping mall in downtown Harrisburg called Strawberry Square. And it was like a disco inside that mall. And they were playing on a lighted dance floor uh, oh, wow. under lit, dance floor like glass or hard plastic and we were diving off the stools from the bar you know onto people it was it was crazy but that's where i met sean linwood who eventually was a singer of admiral Mm -hmm. and um i already knew mike harvin but we kind of formed the idea of you know had the idea of forming a band starting from that show so by the fall of 86 we finally got together to start practicing at my parents house and our first band was called Sacred Hate. We were like a hardcore band, you know, we played like, you know, as close as we could to minor threat style music. We weren't, we were starting to hear like Youth of Today and New York hardcore stuff, but we weren't really interested in playing that. Um, we were aware of it. And, you know, as the years passed, went to a lot of those types of shows as well, but we were really into, you know, DC bands basically. So we were playing like, you know, our version of, minor threat marginal man cheap government issue stuff like that so we you know we rehearsed and we had a local club called the west shore democratic club which we called the demi that opened up in the fall of 
86. And I remember begging to get on our first show. They, they had a bill that they were billing as day of the S bands for, for some reason, Harrisburg had a ton of bands that started with the letter S the stump wizard, Satan's bake sale, the syndicate second crisis. So we're like, can we play the show? And Mike rage, who was in the late teens said, well, your band has to start with an S and we're like, well, we're sacred hate. And he's like, Oh, okay. So we, that was our first show and we were terrible. I mean, I had like, I had a court guitar from Sears was mm-hmm. my guitar. So, I mean, our equipment was terrible. Our playing was terrible, but we got through the show and our second show was opening up for government issue played there. Wow. And we, we had, we didn't, we wrote our own songs, but we had a couple of cover songs and one of them was hall of fame, <laughs> the faster, you know, the faster version of, hall of fame so we mistakenly decided to just play it in oh, our no. set in front of government <laughs> issue Uh-oh. and i remember them watching sitting at a at a table kind of on the outskirts of the few people that were there and they said we could have the song <laughs> at that point so <laughs> that's awesome yeah, so that was good. the start that could and go that, either that way band, you know we played mike harbin and sean and i played together for five years five years after that in different bands we recorded a sacred hate in early 1987 and a friend of ours asked if he could join playing guitar and he actually could solo on stuff so he he became the lead guitarist and we changed the name to the homecoming and played more then that was when so this is important is one of the flip sides going back to flip side when um you know, a couple of people, Al, Al Flipside and Hudley, and I think someone else went to D.C. during Revolution Summer and did that issue about, um, it was all D.C. in it, you know. Yeah. That's yeah. where I first saw the saw anything about Rites of Spring. And I remember seeing the photographs in there, and Eddie Janney had on, like, beetle boots and a tucked-in white shirt and kind mm-hmm. of a mod haircut, and Guy had no shirt on and a Rickenbacker guitar. And I was really confused because we had a big um, mod scene in Harrisburg, you know, kind of related to the, uh, like Pittsburgh had, um, what's that label that the cellar dwellers and. Uh, in, um, is it S not estrus? What is it that's up there? But I know, oh God, I know I Pittsburgh, believe. I know Pittsburgh. There's a couple big eighties uh, garage bands from yeah. that area. So, I mean, a lot of the shows I was going to, leading up you know in the early 80s were these like like garage or mod shows happening so i was aware and liking that music simultaneously to Mm -hmm. to punk rock and hardcore i you know seeing the rights of spring with that look in these pictures i was intrigued because they were it sounded like their music was good but i couldn't hear it and they were talking about instruments breaking and strings popping off and going into their fingernails and they, I think they talked about the DOD, the dance of dance of death um, thing that they would do at shows, and and then I forgot about it because they, you know, that music it wasn't making it up to Harrisburg. So in 1987, when Hans joined Sacred Hate and we became Homecoming, we were rehearsing once, and he he was doing some kind of feedback with his guitar, and then started messing with the toggle switch, and he he just blurted out rights of spring and i was like oh yeah i like it clicked back i remember that article mm. and that's when i sought them out and listened to it in like early 1987 and i'm like oh my you know he, he was referring to i think the end of drink deep or end on end where 
you know, they're doing oh, like yeah. feedback and, and doing and do like the going toggle beep, switch thing. beep, beep, yeah, yeah. you know, and that's what I wanted to do. Like once mm-hmm. I heard that record, you know, cause I mean, it's, this is called end oh, on yeah. end, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it might, I don't know if it's really related to that record or not, but no, it is. Um, it, absolutely. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, those having the just dumb luck of being able to see them at an early age was life-changing for sure. You saw right. You saw right to spring. Yeah. Oh, wow. A few, like three times. Oh my God. That's so great. I know. Yeah. I, it was just, I mean, 1985, I was in 11th grade and not in D.C., and I don't yeah. I think they played one at a town show. Right. So then I didn't know you could, you know, that it was easy to drive two hours down to D.C. Oh, yeah. Might I started well doing halfway it. Halfway across you know. the country when you're that young. Yeah. So you're at, you're, <laughs> you guys are practicing, and the second guitar, she yells, writes a spring and does that, uh, does that yeah. effect, and it's jogging your memory so that. Did that, are you saying that caused you to uh, dig into the to their music? Yeah, that's when I first heard that record. Would have been spring of 1987, and then the single that came out after that. Which now I like that more in a way because I feel like there's no other music like what they what Rights of Spring did on that. Oh, Is for it four, sure. Four songs on that seven yeah, inch. Four songs. That's so um, unique and so different. You know, and it's sort of more more similar to what became One Last Wish, but mm-hmm. still different. And yeah, One Last Wish is another one because my favorite guitar player from that whole period is Mike Hampton. Yeah, he was. Amazing. I just think his his progression from one his tone beginning with SOA, hmm. and that like you know it sounds like he stuck a pencil in his speakers or something like that buzzing and yeah. and that and then the tone on the first faith that split and then what the guitar playing i mean it's all the subject, subject to change yeah, yeah that's the first record i ever listened to on headphones and you know heard panning and guitar and heard you know eddie in one ear and michael on the other and that they were playing two you know sometimes two different things on guitar and it like yeah. stuck with me like oh you don't have to you know, play the same same part in unison all the time, and the other guitar player doesn't have to be doing just guitar solos. Like there's right, something right. else, and it's from that record, listening to it on headphones, that I even realized. And I think I went back and listened to Out of Step that way since since that was two guitars, and they were kind of, but there were some subtle differences that they were yeah. doing. Um, yeah, Out of Step slightly. I mean, if you could say that, a slightly more traditional, yeah. and. Uh, then subject to change but yeah uh okay so homecoming how long did this thing did homecoming homecoming only lasted um not even a year we did record a five song demo and then hans quit and so it was the four of us again mike harvin sean lynn with me and the drummer's name is craig montgomery who um unfortunately died in the pretty early 90s um but um so we changed the name to fuse and kept on playing then we kind of kicked sean out for a while and got a different singer named chili kenzel and that kind of caused a riff in our little scene because a lot of people like sean much more than chili and um then sean came back to town and i think fuse had broken up with chili singing and then Mike started Admiral 
with his girlfriend's brother playing guitar and I was the singer for mm. initially. And we played one show that way where I just sang. I didn't even play guitar. And then Sean came back to town and we were like, we, we need Sean. So we asked him to join the band and kick the guitar player out and started, um, you know, working on what eventually, you know, if you listen to those records would know from the, you know, little bit of material that we recorded. Mm -hmm. But we toured. That was the first time I toured was with Admiral Mike Carbon booked a 15 show tour over the course of three and a half weeks out to California and back, which mm -hmm. is not the way to do it. Yeah, it's, that's, you know, that's it was like we had like, intense. you know, it was too far in too short a time with a lot of, you know, we went from like Little Rock, Arkansas to Lubbock, Texas, and then Lubbock to Phoenix. And wow. then, you know, Phoenix That's to huge. Los Angeles is or Oxnard <laughs> isn't too long, but, you know, it was long, long drives. Um, but on that tour, on the Admiral tour, we met, we played a couple of shows with Green Day. It was Green Day's first tour and somewhere out, at least in um, South Dakota and I think maybe Idaho or something we played with Green Day. And they, they were on their way to the East Coast. So by the time we got back, they were playing in our town and they played like three times over the course of a week and stayed mm -hmm. at Sean's house. We played a basement show with them in Harrisburg. So it was funny to see them. I mean, I remember when, on the first Hoover tour, we were in, um, I think it was Santa Barbara and we played in the green room of a theater and I saw Green Day's name. Like they were the headliner at on the theater side of that building i was like they're <laughs> this they're this popular happen? right uh -huh. <laughs> and um you know the rest is history for them but that was oh, funny yeah. you know and that, i met we met fuel from oh, okay the bay yeah. area and ken mcclard you know we met is that when uh sean first connected with sarah who we played with and yeah uh, we all did yeah. we played in um Oxnard. So we went from Phoenix to Oxnard um, and Kent and Sarah and Sonia Skindrud and um, mm -hmm. Kim Carlisle. Yeah. I think Fuel played that show. So what year did you play? Was it 88 that Admiral played the uh, DuPont Circle festival thing? Because I saw you at that show and that's that when was you... 90, 1990. Was it that was 90 like the fall of 1990. Yeah. Okay. That would have been after so our, the tour we did was like may may to june of 1990 around that period and then that alternatives festival was um the fall of 1990 i believe or late oh, okay. summer that's when you came onto my radar yeah and that's kind of what led to me moving to dc because we started becoming friends with some positive force people from mm -hmm. that doing that alternatives festival and um, by, you know, the following spring, well, after that alternatives festival, they brought us down, like we played a very largely attended Fugazi show with um, Nation of Ulysses right. at Sacred Heart. I think that was early 1991. And that was a memorable show because Steve Croner from Nation of Ulysses didn't show up. I remember from backstage while we were playing, someone in Nation of Ulysses was telling us to keep playing because they were hoping that he would show up. 
Oh no. <laughs> and I have a live recording of that and the sound guys, you know, urging us to wrap it up because we played like 13 or 15 songs. Like we just kept on playing and it seemed like <laughs> we were just using the opportunity to steal the stage, but it was because they were telling us to keep playing because they were waiting for Steve to show up and he never did. And they played as a four piece. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I think that happened a number of times from talking to those guys. Okay. So, so you're making all these connections in DC that, that makes sense. And, uh, did you break up already by the time the second seven inch came out or were you still, you going? know, I don't remember when it oh, came you know what? out. I think not because I remember feel like I either knew the songs from the seven inch seeing you at that alternatives festival or after that festival that getting the seven inch and remembering the songs from the show yeah you know i don't even remember when it came out yeah i don't know <laughs> no worries <laughs> i know we recorded the first one at inner ear like we felt like we had to do that and we recorded with eli janney yeah now we're trying to locate those tapes because none of us have it and someone wants to put out a discography and like put the singles on a on the same lp and i think we we have the second one kent still has the master mm. of that but we've lost touch with jeff from soul force records but i think the, the guy that wants to do it has made contact with him I, i'm not sure of the status of finding like a u- usable version 30 years later yeah that's, um, that's what a lot of people run up against nowadays is were there any uh unused tracks that might make their way onto this thing i think just live which okay. you know there's a lot i heard i had put, a, out, put up on the internet yeah i had a cherished live tape of you guys for a while that before i lost it at some point but uh it was probably that sacred heart show it might the, be it was pretty it sounded like it was soundboard and it was uh there were so many obviously more than the seven inch song so it's like oh wow listen to all these so yeah, it was not too long after that Sacred Heart show. We didn't last much longer after that. I think we we played at DC Space right after that to no one. Like from going from one DC show where there's you know over a thousand people there to uh, having nothing to do with us. You know, it was a Fugazi show. Um, mm-hmm. And that good period of Fugazi where you could still get on stage and dance with them and you know it became less of the spectacle of um you know them arguing with people that were yeah ruining ruining it for everybody you know right um so uh we played at dc space and then we played at abc no rio in new york and then we broke up like the singer and the drummer didn't get along and there was some kind of final blow up blow up and the drummer moved to morgantown west virginia and shortly after Mike moved down to DC and Sean moved to California. So I was the only one left in Harrisburg. Oh, wow. Yeah. Know. Yeah. But um, over that course of that summer, I was friends with Amy Farina and her brother, Jeff, who was going to school at Berkeley school of music. Yeah. And Amy was, had just graduated high school and was going to the Corcoran school of art in the fall. You know, we, asked her she asked us you know let's just get a house together down there so you could go to school and jeff and i will form a band he wanted to get out of boston we moved down there in it was labor day weekend 1991 so like late august early september and uh got a little house in arlington 
not too far from, you know, it was a few blocks away from Discord House and Positive Force House. Mm-hmm. So there was a built from getting to know the Positive Force people over the course of the year through Admiral. There was a built-in community for us. And, um, you know, we spent a lot of time with Positive Force people, Simple Machines. Um, Jenny and Kristen had just moved out of the Positive Force house or they were moving out within that year and had another house in Arlington. And they were putting out records and uh, learning about that process from from them of literally like, you know, putting records in sleeves and folding the, the uh, outer sleeve and putting them in the plastic in your in their living room. You know, the first weekend we were there, Jeff and I were desperate to find a drummer to play with. And a friend of ours, Laura Solitaire, lived at another punk house that was related to positive force called the Edison street house. And she said, well, we're having a band's play in our basement fine days playing. You should talk to their drummer. He's really good. So we went to that basement show and introduced ourselves to Chris Farrell and said, do you want to play with us? And he said, well, I'm kind of busy with fine day, but I think Mark, the guitar player of fine day that went on to be in most secret method, you made them more from, I don't know if you, did you ever hear Fine Day? You oh yeah. See, yeah. See, I was going to mention, uh, I don't know if these bands all had any similarity in uh, geography or not, but you know, there's this era where I got really into, you know, Fine Day, Separate Piece, Grey, uh, uh, there's so many Grey bands. Grey House, yeah. Grey House, mm-hmm. Admiral, of course. Uh, se- uh, there's another one that's, I feel like, a Pennsylvania band that I can't think of because I got I got a comp Junction Junction also maybe that's it there was like a four band comp seven inch that I really dug and then then yeah that was yeah I think that was was Junction on that one they were on that it was Junction's label I mean it was Garrett Garrett Rothman had that label Significant Records and right right so um, I ended up getting what I could when I saw Significant Records on a from a band good stuff but yeah so so yeah and i forgot to mention that that admiral tour was with separate piece they they drove oh. with us to california and they what's funny so is the van that the van they used to go to california they sold to junction and that was junction's van and then when we formed hoover we bought that van from oh, wow. junction and that ended up being the hoover van um, i'm into vans because I do, I do that band van page on instagram and Oh, I have okay. a group about bands and their, you know, photos of and stories about their, their vans. I've seen that page. It pops up. I, I can't remember if I followed or not. I'll have to make sure I do. Uh, there's the basement show or the right. house show with Fine Day. Yeah. So Chris said I can't really dedicate that much time to it because Fine Day is my primary band, but I'll play with you guys. So he did, and we play. We, you know rehearsed during the day in jeff's bedroom we had a three-bedroom house jeff was playing bass and singing i was playing guitar and we were, we called ourselves victor deluxe and worked really hard for about i don't know three or four months booked our first show was at a it was a church show opening i think desert desert dorada and worlds collide were on the bill i think desert 
Desiderata was the headliner, or maybe Worlds Clyde. And then we a week later or two weeks later, we played at DC Space, and it was one of the last DC Space shows. It was closing that December, and I think we played like December 15th or something. And then um, Jeff announced at the show, but he must have told us right before that, that he decided to move back to Boston. Oh, no. So he announced at the show, this is our second show and our last show, and we played. And then after we were done, Fred came up to me, Fred Erskine, and introduced himself and said, you know, that was really good. Um, I heard, you know, your singer say that you guys are breaking up because he's moving back to Boston. Do you want to play some music sometime? I'm like, sure. So we exchanged numbers and, you know, that's probably right before the holidays, but by the first week of January, I was already, he was living in College Park and I was going over to his house to hang out with him and uh, we started playing music. Mm. And then I, uh, you know, I said I had just been playing with Chris and Victor Deluxe. Maybe he wants to play with us. So I contacted Chris and again, he said, I can't spend that much time on it because, you know, when Mark comes back from school, fine days my band and we're like yeah yeah that's fine um so the three of us started playing over the next couple of months in my bedroom in arlington and then i don't it's probably february february or march i got a call from my parents that i didn't even mention this in our talk here but in 1989 admiral played a we played an out-of-town show in pittsburgh to uh, that Darren Zentek from Kerosene 454 set up when he was living in Pittsburgh and his band played, it was a, probably like a four or five band bill. And the headliner was wind of change from Phoenix, Arizona. And that was um, Alex playing guitar, Alex Dunham, mm-hmm. Jim and John wall, Jason Peterson was the other guitar player. And Eric Astor was the drummer. Eric, I think it was Eric's last show and he was, had to fly back home to get a brain tumor removed from his head. He had a brain tumor. And so they were traveling with a second drummer who they would kind of alternate with as, so that drummer could learn the songs. But we met Eric Astor at that show and that that's um, the summer of 89. And they came from Pittsburgh to Harrisburg. And one night they stayed at my parents. Another night they stayed at my girlfriend's and they played in um, DC. We played with them in DC at Safari club with with the change and i think they played in allentown and came back and stayed with us again Mm. so i I met alex in 1989 so jumping to now i'm jamming with fred and chris in the spring of 1992 i get a call from my parents saying that alex dunham left a message here he wants he's desperate for you to call him so i called him and he said uh guess what I'm in, I'm in the area. I'm down in Virginia. We, I decided to move out here with my friend, Matt. We're like at a campsite in Virginia. Can we stop by? And I'm like, sure. So he came by and hung out. And then Matt either moved, decided to move back to Phoenix. I forget the circumstances, but Al's like, can I just move in with you? <laughs> mm-hmm. We're like, sure. So he literally moved into my bedroom. I had the biggest bedroom oh, in the wow. house. And I, when I moved in there, I was already sharing the room with, with someone. And that, that guy only lasted a few months and he moved out. Um, so Alex, you know, set up his stuff in my on the other side of my bedroom. And that's where we would 
rehearse, I'd get together with Chris and Fred and Al would sit out in the living room. And when we'd get done rehearsing, Al would go into the bedroom and plug in. He had a full stack Marshall and he, and it was set up as a full stack in the bedroom <laughs> and uh, on top of each other. And um, yeah. he'd plug in and you know, like play as le- he had a Les Paul at the time. And he just like play super loud by himself. And one of those times Chris said, we should ask that guy to join our band. And I'm like, okay. Mm. And um, so I think we like called him out and said, Hey, do you want to play with us? And he's like, I've been waiting for you to ask me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he started playing with us, you know, sometime in early 1992, about probably like a month after we started playing with each other. Mm. And then fast forward to uh, what is it? October that you recorded this seven inch. Yeah, I think the song we're talking about, um, Sidecar Freddy, uh-huh. and I, you know, and since in the early cable version, and cable, yeah, you were since you at, you know, when you mentioned that particular song to me, I've been trying to refresh my memory of the circumstances, and um, it occurred to me it's the first song that we played that is in an odd time signature, because mm. we had, you know, from when I was playing with just Fred and Chris. We had a certain batch of songs that Alex just kind of learned those songs and they were, you know, more melodic and a little bit more generic. And then he introduced the first two songs that were kind of a different sound from what we were initially doing were two down, which ended up on um, that split single we did with Lincoln Mm -hmm. that art monk put out. I think it was the first art monk construction record which you know garrett also ran that label with eric astor after okay yeah moving to um state college so i had that connection you know garrett's from harrisburg and we were already friends. he went on the admiral tour with us so we're all like connected in various ways al introduced two down and another song called beard that we never recorded we recorded with tim green and out in i think in olympia but I think we put it on a, a tape compilation and nobody's ever really heard it, but those are the first two songs with more of what you know as Alex's signature guitar sound and style. And I remember him showing me specifically in the bedroom we shared, he's like, let's, you know, come up with something to these two, to these parts I have to do these two different songs. And I remember him, um, doing kind of a rights of spring thing where while showing me the song and I was um, figuring something out and he liked what I was playing, he got so excited that he threw his guitar across the room (laughs) from like one side of the room into the wall of the other. But while doing that, his headstock hit me in the nose and my nose started gushing blood. And, you know, we, it hurt a lot at the time. I, thought i broke my nose but we laughed because you know we were so emo like we were breaking (laughs) instruments and bleeding in our bedroom not even performing for anybody right (laughs) those were the first two songs and i think maybe you know he had introduced what became return that was on the next seven inch but still we were still playing some of the other songs so you know over the course of that i think we played our first show in Early, late spring, early summer of 92 at Washington Peace Center. 
and it was all those old songs. And I don't even know if we had two down yet or not. We might have, but if we did, that's the only one we had more mm. in that a new direction. New direction of Hoover. Mm. And we played a few shows over the summer, not too much. And then our first out of town show was in September at Hampshire College. I mean, it had to be, it was the school year and they were using like college funds to pay. I remember the guy calling me and saying, I could pay you $300. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of money for a band without a record that nobody's heard of. And we've only played like three shows. And the only problem is we didn't have a vehicle. And I remember going to rent a vehicle for, to get up to Hampshire and all of us were, you know, Fred was like seven for Chris was 17. I think Fred was 18. The rental place is like, you have to be 25 <laughs> years old and have oh, a credit no. card. And we're like, uh, you're like, we don't, we don't no have, and no. you know, I was 23 <laughs> maybe. Uh-huh. And, uh, Laura solitaire solitaire volunteered to use her credit card to rent the van for us. So we went to this show at Hampshire college and played with flag camp oh, from yeah. Toronto. Yeah, who great. I already knew from Admiral. Admiral played with Fleg Camp on like a, we went out to Kalamazoo for the weekend, two shows over the weekend. And one was Kalamazoo and the Kalamazoo show we played with Fuel, Fleg Camp, Laughing Hyenas and Circus Lupus. Oh my God. That's and I broke a, broke, a, broke a Gibson L6S at that show. <laughs> but so I knew Fleg Camp from then and listened to them a lot. And when we played with them at Hampshire College, they had changed their sound from more of a like a soul sidey sounding mm-hmm. thing to more their Jesus Lizard um, material. But all of that stuff that ended up on, um, I've been trying to remember the name of the record, Your Fair Red Scratch or whatever it's called, the, the CD they put out. I played that double seven inch a lot. Yeah, I mean, they had a full length called, yeah. uh, and um, all of the songs were in odd time signatures and i didn't know anything about that at the time i just i remember dancing to them in place at that hampshire college show and on the way back in the van mentioning it to chris like they have all these songs that are like jerky like like (laughs) you're dancing and then you have to like jerk your body to stay in time and he started talking about oh well that's because that song's in five four or seven eight or you know um, and I'd like opened up something to me. So that was September and we must've come back from that show in that week wrote sidecar Freddie. Mm. And I mean, I remember that came from a week night rehearsal. We used to rehearse at least once a week during the week and once on the weekend. And the weekend is primarily when we would have hours to work on new material, like jam on something and, you know, put it together as, what's going to be a song and the weeknight typically you might jam on something at the beginning and then play the set because you, you know, you weren't starting till like seven o'clock after work and you had to be done by nine because you know, the neighborhood would complain. Right. And we were at the time we were rehearsing at the Edison street house, which Fred moved into to be closer to us. And we were, Amy Farina had moved there from the other house we lived in. I was living in a positive force house at that point. And, um, we used to rehearse in Amy's, but she had the basement and she would let us use the basement, even though she had schoolwork and stuff to do so mm-hmm. we could rehearse. So we had a place to rehearse and we just, that was just a jam. Like Alex and I were fooling around on guitar and then Fred comes in 
with like this waltz at first and then adds like an extra note you know he yeah. plays like three bars of um three four that feels like a waltz and then the last one he plays that, that four, one note that four in there yeah. yeah and we're like and you know i i listened to it this week to kind of refresh my memory of what that song sounded like and alex and i are not starting that in that way we're not following the 13 beats that are in that baseline until he comes in mm. you know i think we're kind of doing a and our rhythm isn't so good on the, on that recording alex alex really i don't think was known for his rhythm so much as his tone and uh so like it's a little bit off like there's not like a really straight count to just the two of us until fred comes in and then fred mm-hmm. kind of pulls us into that rhythm of 13 beats and then i think this the second half of the song we just tacked on another song like i think it was a totally different yeah, riff that what, alex that's had. what i guessed like yeah. think when i hear it that are hearing it now that's what i hear you know having you know whatever same amount of years as you uh of being in bands it's like oh yeah this sounds like we need a second part we've got this thing from this that we couldn't right. put together from another thing let's tack it on here and that that sound uh, alex alex is really into the soul side hot body gram record and i remember when he moved and you know was raving about that record with, which at that point had been out for a couple of years i think it came out in 1989 maybe i like trigger more and he kind of got me to love that hot body gram more than i initially did like it was too dark for me when i first heard it and i was kind of disappointed that it didn't sound like like i thought trigger was such a progression from their first record which i loved mm-hmm. and you know i, I kind of liked growing up with them as they grew up through their their records and they played in you know around harrisburg and we went to dc a lot when you know in the late 80s mike harbin and i and you know garrett rothman and amy before we all moved down there we were going to a lot of shows in um dc and uh you know some of them were soul side shows mm-hmm. lots of fugazi shows lots of government issue shows scream i happened to go to that scream show where dave Grohl first played with them yeah uh, and yeah. that's the first time i saw I there too ian and gee in person i remember they were like dancing in the pit and i couldn't believe one that i was seeing people that i had only seen on the back of record covers um or in in fanzine photos were standing right in front of me dancing in you know the little circle pit um that was happening for scream and i you know dave Grohl's band dane bramage played in harrisburg just before that a couple of months before that so i i knew who he was from that dane bramage show and was like oh cool that that guy that really good drummer from dane bramage yeah. is now in scream um i, I wish dane bramage would have recorded a, a better sounding i love that record that, though that's that album and yeah, that, I love I it. Love the, I love the demos. The album. Yeah, the demos. It's good. Well, and there's a recording. Good. Someone recorded the show that they played in Harrisburg. I've, oh, yeah? I've, uh, huh. I'm in a, a Facebook group, Hardcore for Central Pennsylvania, and someone put it up there, and I couldn't believe they actually recorded that show, which was at, it was a week. If you, Harrisburg had a big, um, a momentous occasion where a government employee sh- shot himself in the face on live TV. Bud Dwyer. Oh, was that and, um, there? That that happened. I was in Harrisburg, and Jeez. they talked about that. The show, the Dane Bramage show, was the, 
a week after that, a few days after that. And um, they mentioned it on that live tape that I've heard. Oh, wow. Well, okay. So we're, ju- we're jumping Fre- years. Yeah. So we're back to Sidecar Freddy. And, Sidecar uh, Freddy, yeah. And were you guys into or aware of the Louisville scene? Because I, I hear a little bit of that. In the, yeah. That's, in the I've thought about that a lot, too. And I kind of knew this would come up. I loved Squirrel Bait going back to, I think I probably first heard them in 1987. I heard Skag Heaven first and then backtracked to the to the previous EP or LP and yeah. loved them. And then real, I was really into Bastro, but I didn't hear Slint until a year later, like 1993. Oh, I remember okay. specifically when um, my friend Stuart, Stuart Fletcher had moved to DC from Olympia. He played them for me. And I think it was October, 1993. I think it was a night we played a show at the black hat with, slant six and circus lupus on halloween and it was either before or after that show that he's like oh you should really listen to this slim new slint record i mean it wasn't new listen to the newest slint record and i told him already i think that i had never heard it you know it seems like something that we would have followed but i just hadn't heard it yet sure but we did you know we were listening to um besides soul side hot body gram we were listening alex introduced us to that to the last talk talk record oh okay laughing stock yeah which i think that was released in 91 alex drove a um old i think it was a 1964 comet and he put a tape player in it and after our rehearsals we'd drive to various diners in northern virginia like tasty diner in mm-hmm. false church or you know we go you know after rehearsal on a weeknight at nine or something and go drink coffee and eat french fries and yeah, sure. he'd play the laughing stock record in the car and um particularly the song ascension day mm-hmm. i think the second song on the record which has i think it's in seven eight and has really aggressive um guitar yeah, it goes from quiet to like this, like not kind of jangly. It's a clean sounding guitar, but very loud and like just very noisy. And okay. um, that particular song had a big influence on what we were doing at that period. And then lyrically, it's related to a diner as well, because um, the name Sidecar Freddy came from Alex worked at an automotive supply place where he was the driver driving automotive supplies to various distribute he was the distributor he worked for the distributor that brings stuff to the stores and i think monday was his busy day where he'd drive like to down deep in virginia and up to pennsylvania it was a bad day to i don't think we would rehearse on mondays because he had such be burnt out long, yeah. right but he mentioned he's like we got to go i got to take you guys to this place in culpepper called little baby gyms or baby gyms which was like a diner um chrome diner attached to the outside of the wall of an office building or something and very you know old looking already at that time in the 90s and it's now permanently closed so i remember at the time of just before coming up with if you want to call them lyrics because there's not very many to sidecar freddy yeah i remember jokingly saying to alex 
we should drive down to that place you were talking about. What's it called? Sidecar Freddy's? <laughs> and he's like, what are you talking about? You mean baby Jim's? And I said, yeah, yeah, that's it. I just remembered saying that, and that's what I used for the title of the song and the first words. Did you write those lyrics? I did. I ran, wrote and sang that one. And so what are the other lines pull up for you? Sidecar. I, I don't know. I don't, I think it's more, it was more about rhyming something um, and stream of consciousness. And I didn't spend a lot of time on it. And I, we talked a lot of, at the time, the lyrics necessarily were the least important thing to us. It was more about the music part of it speaking for itself and what we constantly spent most of our time on. Deciding who was going to sing was whoever felt um, it was a little bit of rotating and mm-hmm. a little bit of who could sing and play at the same time, like depending on how, depending on how complicated, compli- you know, right. rhythmically your part was, could you sing at the same time that you were doing that? So somebody would speak up and say, I I think I can do this one. Or someone might just step up to the, you know, we probably had one microphone stand in the room with a mic on it. And someone's like, because Alex, a lot of his lyrics, he would just make up on the spot as we were rehearsing and then, you know, write whatever he could remember down afterwards. But I don't know that we worked as hard on the lyrics as we could have i mean they're very it wasn't really important to us at the time and and some of that is the influence of that talk talk record in looking at the lyrics i think there were lyrics printed they were very very sparse yeah well and i mean the soul side record as well yeah that's when they got very abstracted with the lyrics on that hot body gram too yeah i think it was kind of trying to leave a mystery you know so 30 years later and so not that we could predict this but you know we can uh debate what they might have been about yeah right i mean i don't think they're they're that hard to think about um if i'm think, you know i don't know that it wasn't my intention and jotting them down and using them i mean they string together well and they're they follow a line of thought they don't come across as just gibberish right and I, you know i everybody i'm sure has their moment where they feel like they're under so much pressure that, you know, their brain's about to explode or, you, you know, you feel like you're being crushed under some sort of weight. So it must have been about that. Not that I can't say that, you know, I was necessarily feeling that way at the time. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't in any kind of depressed state or anything at the time of writing that. So leading to the recording, because there, there couldn't have been that much time between writing it, playing it and recording it and we did not play it long after it came out because we wouldn't have had it before september because i'm pretty sure it was influenced by that both that flight camp show and hearing them do so many odd time signature songs and listening to talk talk and thinking about that idea and you know seriously like starting to re-listen to take five by dave brubick and you know blue rondo ella kirk and being like oh i never realized that that's a time signal. And I play, I grew up playing trombone. I like had read music at one time, but we were playing, mar- you know, there's not a lot of odd time signatures and marching band music, you know, in elementary school. So it was in our set of songs at some point, probably in September and early October. And I remember playing a, I remember two specific times playing it that stand out. One is playing it at the end of a set and finishing the set and breathing heavily from you know screaming that stuff at the end of the song 
and Ian coming up to me and saying, Joe, that was great. When are you guys going to record? And um, I had never really talked to him much prior to that. I'd seen him at, at shows and, you know, the couple of times that we played Fugazi, but it wasn't like we were tight or close friends. So I was, of course, intimidated that he's approaching me <laughs> and kind of at an odd time where, you know, we just got through a set or at least one song of intense music. And uh, so he said, when are you going to record? And I said, uh, I don't know. We don't have any money. Hmm. And he said, fuck that. I'll give you the money. And wow. I was like, holy shit, we're on Discord. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't know if he explained it right then or in talking about it shortly after that. He wasn't putting it out on Discord, but mm-hmm. that he had a process of loaning bands that he was interested in helping out and um, kind of like teaching or training you through the process and seeing how serious you were about doing what you were doing. So right. not letting money be a hindrance. But you have to learn to some work. of the steps, yeah. So I don't know if he scheduled a time with Jeff Turner if we did, and he suggested it. I do remember talks about that type of stuff with him, but I don't. It might have been the second seven inch because I know we were debating. I think that that was more about the LP because we were thinking like with Inner Ear, where everybody records Don Z and Tara will get you the sound of your band, you know, at high fidelity, but you're basically producing it yourself unless you bring in someone with you. And Don's not really thinking of production so much as getting a nice, good sound. Mm -hmm. And Jeff Turner being a producer who can get you good sounds, but he's, he loves the Beatles and, you know, stuff like that. So, and you know, it may also have been since it was our first record that that was the cheaper place to go. I don't know, but I, I remember it being something like, you know, loaning us a thousand dollars or twelve hundred, twelve hundred to record and put it out, something like that. So, you know, we did it pretty much as quickly as possible. It was two songs. Those were Cable and um, Sidecar were the two newest songs that we had at that mm-hmm. point. So, we probably recorded them on a Saturday and mixed them on a Sunday. That's when WGNS was in a basement in Arlington on Glebe Road. So it was his his house. Yeah, Yeah. his house. And he had the, you know, kind of a, it wasn't big or small, medium-sized room. And then a little room off of that, that was the, um, you know, where the the control room. And there was a bathroom in there, which sometimes you'd use for, like, you might do the vocals in the bathroom. Charles um, Bennington part of this? Yeah, Charles Bennington was living there. Because he played sax on the, you know, when we did the LP there, he played a saxophone on couple of one unreleased song and um an instrumental we did and then i on uh i think the re-recording of cable yeah i was gonna say there's horns on cable yeah yeah we recorded that he kind of i think ian gave us some of the suggestions of once we had the you know like you i recall going to buy the tape ourselves to bring with us to the studio or to give to jeff like it wasn't something he had on hand he'd be like oh "Oh, you're gonna go need to get a reel of ampex what you know whatever number yeah. And I think I, I feel like I went to Chuck Levin's or something and got that, but it might've been for a different recording. I don't know if it was that one specifically, okay. yeah, yeah. but I kind of remember that part of it. Like you went and bought your tape and it showed does. up with it or dropped it off um, prior to the recording and it being really fun to work with Jeff Turner. He's really funny. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, 
mean, you had been in the studio a number of times by this point, but uh, yeah, but not with the guy from Gray Matter. You know, <laughs> right, like yeah. that's it's a little different than you know, yeah. like Sean's cousin. You know, I think <laughs> you know. I mean, I, I think recording with Eli would have been intimidating because we, you know, we knew Rain and yeah, and then the other one we did, I think, seriously was like as far as Admiral goes, was, was like Sean's cousin or some somebody local. So yeah. that like slight being intimidated part of it wasn't there for yeah. for that as much as, you know, being with a guy from, you know, whose records you loved. But he's really, really funny, you know, and warm guy and uh, knew what he was doing. So did he give you any uh, ideas or uh, advice while recording that you remember yeah i'm sure with mm, on vocals one like just redoing things to try to get as much in tune as possible you know you weren't using like an auto-tune sort of thing so i think you know concentrating on that i mean i he's perfect because he both plays guitar and sings himself um that he's he's thinking and probably bass and and something um he uh understands all aspects of that i remember more from the lp just because it was a longer process because we recorded over a week and there is a funny story with the the lp because he was having a battle with with chris about the tom sound on song father on Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. which is predominantly tom's on, on the long the majority of the song and i remember recording that I mean, trying to mix that song and Chris would not let up. He's like, the toms just don't sound right. And <laughs> Jeff trying everything. And we were spending hours just on the, the tom, you know, trying yeah, to yeah. mix the toms. And finally, Jeff Turner turned around to Chris. I was sitting next to Jeff and Chris was behind him. And he like, probably was on a swivel seat or something. And he turned around and he said, I could see you're looking for something more precise and he pulled all the faders down on everything on the song, like to start from scratch. Oh, and wow. we were like, "Oh my God, you're kidding!" Here we me. go. Like we spent hours <laughs> like on on everything, the guitars, and the only thing like not working for you was the toms. And now we're starting from scratch, but it worked. Wow. <laughs> I think it, wow. I think it went much quicker after that. But yeah, that's yeah. that stood out as far you know. Um, in the crickets, I think on Route Seven was his idea to put a microphone outside the back door of the studio and record the traffic and crickets. Yeah. Well, don't go too far into it. Cause I want oh, yeah, to okay. punish you again. Let's, let's focus on, um, um, sidecar and sidecar. So the other thing that stands out about actually playing sidecar live was another, and it, this is why it makes it confusing. Another, a different show than the one that Ian, you know, introduced the idea of recording. Uh-huh. Oh, and getting back to that. So, you know, he, he kind of helped walk us through what it's like to put a record out. So we booked the time with Jeff, did the recording, got the suggestion of options of where to send the tape to get it mastered and pressed. Mm-hmm. And we did that with K disc. And I remember like, you know, putting it in the mail and uh, shipping it and um, work at some point we worked with John golden. I'm not sure if that, that's who was doing K disc at the time. I just can't recall. I think so. I think so. And um, you know, be nervous that you're sending like the thing you worked hard on in 
you know, somebody in the me. middle, middle's hands, you know, on the other side of the country. I think they're in California, right? I, was K this California? I, I feel like it was far, like it was, but I just remember, yeah, John Golden K disc was he was right. the man for everything back then. And then getting it back and get you know getting the test pressing and um, just you know being amazed that it worked, like something came out, and um, that being the first you know Hoover limited release out of not too many <laughs> releases <laughs> because we didn't last hence, that long. Hence limited too. <laughs> right and very limited and you know a relationship with ian and jeff and discord that lasted you know till yeah. now you know i mean i'm sh- i'm sure any of us have a band in or around dc he'd um be interested in putting out records you know right so if you flip the record over you got cable and oh there's one more thing i wanted to say about sidecar specifically and i was starting to say it and i get the shows confused there's the one but ian Mm -hmm. brought up the idea i guess it was after we recorded since we recorded in october we played it on um the night before thanksgiving wednesday night we played another show at the same place this these were at saint stephen's shows where you you know there's no stage you're playing on the floor Mm -hmm. and I had realized earlier in the day that I had some kind of stomach virus while I was at work. I used to work with um, two autistic men at their job site. And I remember hanging out with them during the the day and feeling terrible and knowing I had the show at the night that night. And uh, I mentioned it to the guys in the band, but then, you know, you played whether you were sick or not, or at least we did. We never like, yeah. I need, I want to cancel. And, you know, it wasn't like COVID times where you're like, I might infect the whole room. You of know, course. you weren't thinking about yeah. that. I remember one of the band members giving me some Pepto-Bismol while we were loading up to go to the show, thinking that that would help me. And then that was a positive force show. So it was pretty traditional for someone at positive force to go do a burrito brothers run and give everybody in a band because they, they were benefit shows. So your payment was your burrito that you got. So I probably ate half a burrito and we played the set and I was feeling sicker and sicker. And the last song was sidecar Freddy. And when I'm doing that screaming part of release the pressure, I realized that I was going to be sick and I was going to literally release the pressure. Oh, no. And I, <laughs> was looking at the people standing in front of me, including Ian was there <laughs> and Guy. And um, I turned around and threw up on the floor oh. while the rest of the band <laughs> was playing. And it was a lot. Oh. And I, you know, I didn't turn back to sing. I just lifted my guitar off my body, put it on my case and then threw up on the guitar in oh, the case. Jesus. Yeah. And, um, the band, you know, the rest of the guys finished the song. Then, you know, there was the trying to, we were, we were playing like second or third to, you know, we're in the middle. So there were other bands to go <laughs> no. on. So yeah, this yeah. had to, what, what I had just done, another band um, had, to, walk had to be stage. dealt with before the, the next band can play. I can't remember Yikes. which, um, which show was because there was, you know, one with Sam I Am, one with Circus Lupus, one with Lungfish as the headliners, and mm-hmm. I'm kind of confused at which particular show it was. But somebody in the audience right at that point said, um, looks like that guy had one too many. And <laughs> Ian yelled at him and said, shut the fuck up, that guy's sick. Uh-huh. And um, 
they, you know, helped me um, get situated and cleaned up as, you know, between positive force people and whomever, like they got it cleaned up as best as they could. I was highly embarrassed that I had done that. But one thing I remember is Guy saying to me right after that, he's like, that was fucking amazing. I haven't seen anything like that since I saw the cramps play I in Georgetown. I was wondering if that was going to come up. <laughs> and the, the funny thing is, is I thought about that, not, not that often, but, you know, it pops into my mind. But just this week, I saw a photograph of Lux Interior throwing up at that Georgetown show. Like somebody actually caught it on oh, wow. <laughs> in a photograph. And no way. <laughs> I'm in like some, some cramps group and saw that picture for the first time like three days ago. And I'm like... That happened during Sidecar <laughs> Freddy. That's perfect for this uh, talk we're about to have. Oh, my God. That's funny. I mean, not in retrospect, funny, but Jesus. Yeah. yeah, in the moment, that's intense. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think anyone in a band can relate, and maybe not the uh, the release of it, but, you know, <laughs> I've, I've definitely had uh, food poisoning on tour and been just raced from the stage to the bathroom from uh end of a set and that kind of thing so yeah. oh man jeez. and now you cancel the whole tour you know with one one sniffle what's you that know. Oh, nowadays know. you know one know. sniffle you're like oh i might have covid we can't do you know we, yeah. we could infect an entire country yeah so different now you're right but then, you know, it kind of made you feel better while you were playing. You know, if you had the flu, every someone always, especially European tours, someone always got, if not the whole mm. band, got at least a cold, if not the flu. Yeah, sure. Like the only time you felt good was while you were playing and sweating. Exactly. And you're like, oh, I feel great now. And, exactly. That's true. It, so many times you sweat, you, you think, how am I going to put a guitar on and play? And then right. by the end of the show, you're, you're like, I'm a million bucks now. <laughs> All right, then, uh, Abel, I think this song is it's definitely where things get like really uh, musically way more complex and interesting uh, uh, to my ears, even back then, because of all the syncopation going on and uh, rhythmic complexity that's, but groove, you know, the the groove is so strong on that. Yeah. You know, besides, you know, I mentioned some of the things we were listening to that might have led to sidecar freddy which is the first odd time signature song at the same time when we travel around we played a lot of i mean that hampshire college show was our first out of town shows but after that we started playing as much as we could somewhere every weekend leading up to going on tour the next Mm -hmm. summer all we wanted to do was play as much as possible and all of us contributed cassette tapes to listen to in the van when we were on these long drives and you know we would rotate out of fairness so you know i'd get to play a tape and sometimes you'd make a tapes you know so the rest of the band can hear what you like um and chris farrell had a lot to do with you know things that came out like that in cable because he played a lot of jb's james james Mm -hmm. brown stuff in the van Mm -hmm. um rolling stones exile on main i mean more like beggar's banquet and uh sticky fingers beastie boys paul's boutique um maybe a little bit of reggae i think he was starting to get into that that might have been i played with him in the sorts too so that developed Mm -hmm. further as the years went along but started kind of there and i and i started thinking listening to that thinking a lot about 
particularly in the JB's case of the two different guitar players in the band were playing two different things that if you sat, if you tried to be like a parlor guitar player and play that guitar in front of someone and make absolutely no sense as right. like, yeah. it's not a on song. Its yeah. It's just like a rhythm on guitar, almost more like piano in some ways. And they weren't stepping on each other's toes and somehow fitting into these little pockets of rhythm that were happening. So it started being absorbed by all of us in that way and, and coming out that, you know, Alex and I didn't want to play the same guitar part at the same time. So mm -hmm. I was playing more, you know, more of the arpeggiated stuff and chicken scratch. I mean, I, they called, uh, now I forget their names. I used to know them very well. One of the JB's guitar players was like the chicken scratch was like mm -hmm. his nickname or something. And that's how I, I would try to be that guy playing guitar, like more, like I'll play the same part for yeah, yeah. the full two or four or five minutes of a song and like never waver from that. Yeah. And I think cable is one of the first songs that has that where I don't really do that much on guitar, but it's some rhythm in there that is always in there. And Alex, you know, int he introduced that um, initial part that the song starts with and, you know, kind of has a jazzy feel, a lot of reverb on the guitar and a little unusual for him because it's so clean, you know, such a clean um, rhythm. I know we were listening to the, um, did you ever hear the, I think it's a sub pop release of Stephen Jesse Bernstein. That's the uh, talking like he talks. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. poet talks over like kind of jazzy music mm -hmm. in the background. We listened to that a lot at the time, and that may have had a, a big influence on the jazzy aspects of that okay. song, yeah, of that yeah. like rhythm. And then you know, lyrically, I mean, Fred would have to speak on this, but you know, his lyrics got you know slightly more less personal than me, and and uh, mysterious than. Alex and mine, you know, his had, you know, a little bit more of a politics sort of um, broader. Yeah. Net. Yeah. Well, and uh, is there any connection on the LP? There's a, uh, even though I said we weren't going to talk about the LP, there's a credit to Cable Nelson. You know, I don't recall what that Cable Nelson. Yeah. I don't know what that means. Okay. <laughs> I'd have to look at that myself. Right. I haven't lo looked at well, the record. I'll give you that homework for. Uh, I need to see a picture of it. Yeah. It, well, it's just the. Oh, cat. it might be the cat. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, if you listen closely, there's a cat that meows in that song. And. Um, well, I don't Jeff... even know if. Uh, I don't know if it's that song. It's just on the album itself uh, here. Let me pull it up real quick. Uh, on Discogs, the credit. Yeah, for piano is Cable Nelson. Cable Nelson. I'm not sure what that means. Okay. <laughs> no worries. I was just curious if it was I thought it had to something to do with the cat because we did Mike the piano in Jeff Turner's living room upstairs. And I thought Jeff played the piano part, but maybe yeah, that maybe was just a pseudonym. Could have been. Maybe it was Brian Nelson. I'm not sure. But the cat was either on top or or behind the piano without us knowing it while he was recording it. So you hear a couple of times the cat meowing uh -huh. in that, that version of the song. 
That's and funny. we didn't even know it was happening at the time. <laughs> Audio bombed your yeah. recording. <laughs> it's permanent. So the in the performance on the seven inch of cable, to my ears it sounds more assured than even on uh sidecar Freddy. It sounds super confident. Like there's a, a swing and a swagger to it, whereas on sidecar it sounds good, but it's 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 more tentative and maybe that part of that maybe that's part of the nature of the kind of twinkly intro part two but i mean i think it's also where we're you know uh, in thinking about the timelines of this stuff which, which i've been thinking about this week leading up to talking to you about this is it's so early like we didn't play that much between when yeah. fred and i first started playing in january to october of recording you know we were just getting started on live shows and writing songs and didn't even really get into what we were going to be until basically at that point of rec- rec- like that month, you know, September and October of wow. 1992. Yeah. And by the time we recorded the record, we had already toured for eight weeks and played, you know, a whole year's worth of shows every weekend and a lot of weeknights. In 1992, for that year, we lived in different houses, all pretty close to each other in Arlington. In the summer of 93, we moved in together. Mm. And that probably would have been, I think we recorded in August of 93. So I think we moved in together right around that time and started rehearsing in, you know, our garage and in the basement of our house in Mount Pleasant. Um, So some of that, you know, if you're hearing any difference in confidence, probably just has to do with that length of time and how much time we spent with each other. And particularly like touring and playing those songs yeah, every I mean, night. Touring just will tighten any band up. You have to fight to not get tight by the end of a tour. So you, you say you got a chance to check out these songs prior to doing this interview, right? Like, yeah, you've played. Yeah, I listened to them. I had it's been a while since I've listened to them. And I mean, you know, it'll probably at least once a year, every couple of years, I remember to listen to it um what does it bring up for you uh like say this time like what came to, to uh, mind this time feelings? i was really thinking about specific things over the course of those couple of years you know and one uh, i mean having no idea what you were going to ask me about specs of it but we've kind of covered it all because we went yeah. back to the 70s when i first started listening <laughs> uh-huh. to music in the first place uh-huh. um is um you know just kind of reminiscing about that stuff and i mean i I, one just how lucky i am because you know for one like in in meeting those guys and and playing and you know people seeming at the time excited about it and still to this day you know 30 some years later that we're talking you know someone like you is interested enough to talk to me about just one specific record yeah you know we're very lucky that that even happened and people felt the way they did and ending up, you know, building a relationship with Ian and discord records is, you know, we're not from DC. Mm-hmm. You know, we were out of towners that invaded DC in the <laughs> early nineties and we're at a level enough that someone was willing to help us get that stuff documented, you know, and I mean, Lungfish is the only out of town band that they've ever put out. 
and void, you know, voids kind of out of, out of town, Columbia, but not uh, most of it is, you know, people that went to high school together, grew up together and we didn't even, you know, the band didn't even grow up together. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like (laughs) we like (laughs) met each other and Ian's talked about this himself because he knew all of us individually from the bands we were in and the towns we were from previously from Fugazi traveling around. So he knew Alex from playing in Phoenix and when to change open for them there. Mm-hmm. And he had met Fred in Omaha where Fred's from knew me from Admiral and, you know, playing, we played with Fugazi in Lancaster at, at the chameleon, which was a small club. And, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, that show in DC. So we were already, you know, building the seeds of, of that relationship and then just happened to all, you know, get to DC somehow for various reasons. And, you know, form this band and, you know, and then it led to all the other projects that we did, you know, between then and now, you know, there's multiple mix up the members and yeah. we played with, you know, somebody we played with in Hoover in this other band, you know, Fred played with Alex and Abilene and I played in Regulator Watts right before, you know, they I joined them and I was going to move to Chicago with them before they mm-hmm. broke up. All of us, I think, did different contributed to recordings of the sorts with Chris. And mm. uh, so, you know, we've, and we're, we're still in contact with each other. I don't know that we'd ever play together again, but in that band, but um, yeah, sure. you know, Vin, who was in um, the crown hate ruin with Fred and I, I just saw his band play last week. They played in near Annapolis, not too far from me, about 30 minutes. And I went to see his band with, Amanda McKay is a singer. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that band's good. And yeah, I uh I played a handful of shows with you guys and uh Crown Hate Ruin when my band was on tour in the East. You guys were too. What was your band? Uh one of them was uh Amber Ann. Oh yeah. I remember you guys. Yeah. I didn't put it together. Amber Ann, yes. Yep. <laughs> Quite a while ago still. It's funny, uh so I saw some youtube videos and saw one of uh like a couple months after you recorded this of a show out of town i can't remember where maybe it was pennsylvania but uh you guys playing and you opened with sidecar freddy it's a lot more aggressive version too i haven't seen that one but anyway yeah i was thinking about that also because both songs were so short-lived for us we couldn't have written them any earlier than September and recorded them in October. And they would have been our newest songs. And by the time we went on tour in May or June, the following year in 93, I don't think we were ever playing them. Like I'm surprised cable even made it on onto the LP. Cause I don't think we played it that much. And we definitely didn't play sidecar Freddie. Mm-hmm. It was kind of, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people do this, but once you record it and hear it and listen to it over and over again, you're kind of, unless you're like touring right around the time that your record's coming out, which in most of my cases, you know, I was lucky if the record came out by the time you're there was a tour and <laughs> we, we broke up anyway. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. I mean, sure. I remember when we put out the Crown Hate Ruin record, Ian had us come over for dinner to say, I want to do this, but you know, are you going to stay together? <laughs> yeah. It's a pain. It's a pain in the ass to do all this work. And you know, you're not going to keep on being a band. 
they were like, oh yeah, yeah, we're solid. And, <laughs> and then, next thing you know, you know, then it fell apart. Of course. Yeah. Was it a friend of yours that did the artwork for this cover? You know, I was trying, I was thinking about that cause I could not remember, you know, and I mean, I, in my head, I could remember what it looked like. And I assumed that was, you know, in the days where you'd just like steal things from books and not think about copyright yeah. and yeah, and that, which that, that was just like being that age and not knowing that there were, you know, either rules, laws, or just, you know, etiquettes courtesy. about, yeah. right, courtesy, <laughs> yeah. right. <laughs> so I was thinking that it was one of those situations. I do remember the font for Hoover, mm, yeah. Alex working with, and I was present for this, working with Kristen from Simple Machines on her computer. I don't know exactly what she had, but probably some early Mac thing, like what, what was around in 1992. Mm-hmm. Do you do you remember? I can't remember. Oh, no. but... I barely. I mean, I knew of computers in You know what? I feel That's like it. we went somewhere. We went to like a, a Kinkos type place to mm-hmm. use their computer to look at the fonts that you can you do on a computer. Uh-huh. And it being really exciting for me because I had never seen that before. And like looking through instead of like like a printing press or like cutting things out of newspaper or magazines mm-hmm. to to put your name on. They, they were like, you know, picking something specific after looking through a bunch of fonts. But I can't remember who it's S. Becker is. That, I looked at it yeah. this week and I'm not, I can't remember who that is. That's all right. Yeah. It might be, I think Al's grandmother's, I think it might have been a friend of Alex's. I think his grandmother's name was Sally, but um, I don't recall her doing any artwork or woodcut type stuff so it might be i'm not, I'm not 100 sure okay no worries uh, i should have researched it a little bit more before that but i mean the backside that definitely comes from that type of stuff of of uh taking something from another record or right except outside some, of the, the photo right something it looks like some kind of 50s early 60s style yeah, uh, yeah. right how stereo works in the photo you know we were like it was as a band trying to keep a, a sort of mystery to it so if i was keeping with that i shouldn't have even have done this talk with you you know oh. i should have just been like <laughs> i don't know you right. figure it out but <laughs> um you know we didn't put pictures of our ourselves that were clear like you didn't know what we looked like um we didn't do any interviews at the time which is probably a mistake you know as as you're like now 30 years older there's nothing to look back yeah, to, as to, yeah, to yeah. What, what you said at the time well you, you know don't probably have the mar- embarrassing uh yeah there are comments yeah, either exactly right <laughs> so i my co-host will kill me if like he always has to remind me of things like the obvious ones so the name how'd the name come up of the band of the band yeah alex suggested that and I, I don't know that there was a specific thing. I kind of vaguely remember him saying something like, you know, what do you think about Hoover? You know, like J. Edgar Herbert mm-hmm. and that being, and we, us just being like, sure. The Hoover union aspect of it, using that came, I feel, directly from our love for the band Ignition. Oh, and okay. Ignition mm-hmm. would call themselves Ignition Services, I, I think I recall. Yeah, yeah. And there, there's a sort of aesthetic that 
they had, you know, it's funny because I was, and you, you might've been there if you were living around there at the time, because we talked about nation of Ulysses. I was at their first show when they were just Ulysses mm-hmm. and they, um, opened for, um, I think it was a Fugazi show and I think ignition played and it was the one, there was one ignition show where they had two guitar players where Chris Bald's yeah. brother played second yeah, guitar. Yeah. I, were I you at, at that, that show? For sure. Yeah. And uh, so I think that was like, that was 1988 or 89. I remember when Ulysses played and they wore suits at that show and they were, they were only a four piece then. So they weren't waiting. I don't think Tim Green was in Tim the band. Wasn't there yet. Right. Yeah. And they had suits on. And I remember thinking, oh, they're like, they're copying Ignition. Cause I had seen Ignition play wearing suits. That's and, right. Yeah. And um, I always thought of that specific thing, that being specific to Ignition. Um, so we, de- you know, had a love of how they presented themselves, I think, mm-hmm. as as a band, which is funny, again, because we're the four of us are from four different towns across the country, yet we, we loved a lot of the same stuff, you know, the at the same aesthetics. time. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Um, you know, when we got serious and did a silk screen to put on our cabinets and stuff and we might have used it for a shirt or something at the time we used hoover hoover union limited maybe hoover i don't know if we had the limited on it or not yeah um, yeah i remember uh both hoover and uh brown hate ruin uh there's always an, a a visual aesthetic associated at least in my mind with you guys and for a short time we'd refer to ourselves as our initial and in the, the last name hoover I mean, I have some correspondence with Alex where, you know, he'd be oh, like yeah. A Hoover and I'd be J Hoover. <laughs> J that's Hoover. how, but yeah. we took on like that Ramones, Ramones thing of we're changing our name to Hoover. Okay, thanks so much, Joe. Hopefully, uh, won't be the last time we speak with you. I doubt it will, and hopefully, we'll get the other folks on here for the next release. Yeah, there's a few. There's quite a few Hoover records. There I, there's a few. There's there's a couple that are not on Discord. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there's plenty that are. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I look for. I really do look forward to it. Honestly, like there's a couple. Uh, records that i was on the fence about back in the day that i'm still on the fence about that i won't say who they are because i respect everyone you know that takes the time to make art whether i appreciate it or not you know i respect the effort and uh you know the work that goes into that and the the guts and the vulnerability so i'm not going to talk shit but i'm excited to go further with the hoover uh, chronology yeah which is great because I really was like unsure what I was going to think before listening to the seven inch. So anyway, now this is the part of the show where Jeff usually gives his PSA, right? Yeah. And, you know, doing all the hawking that you're too humble to do. (laughs) Right. You know, so, uh, no, thank you for listening. Uh, spread the word, tell your friends, you know, write a review. What you're going to do is you're going to go to the review and you're going to, Give it five stars. Okay. And then write, I like the podcast. That's all you need to do. It's yeah. really the stars yeah. that count. I agree. It's, it's getting the stars. So go give it five stars. 
write a quick review. It really, really helps. It helps. And, more people, um, uh, it gets it out there more for whatever reason of logarithm-wise. It, it makes it so that it pops yeah. into people's searches more often. And, and uh, the, word, the word is algorithm. What not logarithm, not logarithm, which is a mathematical concept, <laughs> and I would love to do an entire show about logarithms, but oh, Jesus, that's another time. Would. Another yeah. time. And you're not even that into math, Rock. So, <laughs> yeah, strange, strange. I do like here. Yeah. I was going to make up a dad pun right now, but I'm oh, not going to do it because oh, I am I am not a comedian, and you know what I say: leave comedy to the comedians. <laughs> um. Anyway. Also, of course, there's the Patreon. Uh, that really helps. It helps Brian keep the lights on, helps him keep running this thing. Go to Patreon. It's and then search for End on an Extras Club. Super cheap, and you get um, access to the Discord server and some occasional additional content. Um, when yeah, Brian isn't busy course. with his <laughs> with his five other podcasts, but honestly, uh, it's worth it for the Discord server access alone. And the bi-weekly uh, Zoom chats and and all mm-hmm. that great stuff. So yeah, and the new uh, the newest element of that is just that I've decided. I believe last episode, if I'm not mistaken, was the 125th episode. So not that one, but from now on, every fifth episode. So number 130 will be the first one of every five, where each five episodes the patrons that donate. The, the higher level, higher tier ones, the the ten dollars or more patrons get to choose the topic for the episode every five episodes. So, and that's going to be in the main end on end feed. Yes, regular episodes. So, you, in fact, which we won't disclose what the first one will be, but you've uh, agreed to be on the first one of those. Did I now? <laughs> you did. Well, let me check my calendar. <laughs> yeah. I, I trust you that I did. Um, you really never want to finish. I know. This I'm really prolonging That's, the end. That of this is thing. that is the real thing because you know these podcasts used to come out every week, uh-huh. and they came out every other week with the half releases still every week. Yeah, yeah, right. That's right. now it's That's like you, you get two episodes a month at most, and every fifth one is going to be something different. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so we have a Spotify playlist. Which is going to be tough to add to this week. Um, I know. But that is End on End, the ever evolving Discord mixtape. I guess there's also an Apple Music equivalent of this. There is. As of now, and this does not include the episode that is not aired, uh, 207 songs, which is 10 hours and 22 minutes of music. Uh, you, by the time you'll get around to this, it'll be 208 songs and I don't know, what's the average Circus Lupus song? 10 hours and 25 minutes of music. Who knows? Well, it's it, two songs uh, released, right? Oh, two songs released. So, yeah, so maybe a little more than that. It'll be about two, uh, ten, ten, ten and, and, and a half, half hours. About ten and a half yeah. hours. So that's pretty good. That'll get you That'll get you through a good part of the Southwest, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Not bad. Get you halfway through Texas. It, it's Yeah, if, <laughs> if you're lucky. Yeah. So, in any case, we're not really going to be able to add to this because neither of these songs are on Spotify. No, it's well, and, one of them is, but not this version, but not this version. So here's the problem. The problem is, is that we're picking different songs. I know. Well, we could, that, that's a, we have to come to, to a conclusion. Like what's, who's going to convince the other of. The, <laughs> well, 
Well, usually we don't because we would each get our own choices. Well, sure. But I think we've kind of established with two songs, seven inches. Right. It should be one song. It should be one song. So my argument for Sidecar Freddy is that it is the, uh, in my opinion, the more interesting of the songs. Mm -hmm. And because it is not on the LP, it is the only opportunity is the only chance that this song has to make it onto a playlist, but because it's not on Spotify, it really has no chance of making it onto the playlist <laughs> anyway. So, with that said, your choice is obviously cable. Cable. So, if you want, I'll put on cable because I do like the song, and we could put on the LP version. I guess you want to just do it that way. Yeah. I Listen, guess so it's a little bit of a cheat, but sure. Let's we've do done that. it before. Listen, we put we put the actual standells, good guys don't wear white, <laughs> on this playlist. Like oh, if you go funny. back to the playlist really? and go okay. back and go back to uh the yeah, uh, salad I guess days. the salad days, you will find the actual standells version That's of that so song. Funny. Yeah. yeah. So like, you know, this is what we've done on this show. So it's okay. So one thing that I think's funny that that Joe told me uh when i told him we were recording this part of the show which came after the interview if there's anything else about it he he thought he said the only thing i can think to add is that besides being the first odd time signature songs we had both sidecar and cable were the first we stumbled upon creating atmosphere and mood compared to the earlier set which was just really just songs also, Sidecar seems like it should be performed by a secondary character in a musical. <laughs> I thought that was great. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> good. I like that. Yeah. All right. So we'll put on cable. Listen, mm -hmm. here's another spoiler alert. When you get to the LP, cable ain't the song you're picking. Yeah. <laughs> so sure. I, I don't think there's any threat um, <laughs> to be in a situation where like, oh no, what do we do? So we'll we'll put cable on. I'm, I'm okay. good with that. Yeah, yeah, I'm good with that, too. All right, so what do you got coming up next time? You're asking me? Shit. I'm asking you. That's I always ask you. Next time, if I'm not mistaken, we are having the first Discord soundtrack. That would be wrong. Oh, am I wrong? Oh, shit. <laughs> are you serious? I'm, I, am, I am totally serious. Oh, my God. What? Yeah. I thought for sure. Let me see. No. Oh fuck! Um, next time you're 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 very close. Next, but it's yeah. not the soundtrack. What no. is it? It's the odds and sods. Uh, same no, title. It's the, of... It is the film instrument. Is the it the film? film? What? Yes, the film instrument is Discord. It's not the record. Oh, the soundtrack shit. is Discord One Twenty. Oh my god! Really? Yeah, really. Oh my god! That's. <laughs> That changes the game. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I'm glad gotta, you told me. <laughs> now you gotta watch now you gotta watch a movie. Yeah, I guess I do. I mean, not that I haven't seen it a billion times, but interesting. Okay. There you go. Yeah. And that's uh that's before you hit a month of scream. <laughs> I know. Oh, more than a month. Like three yeah. episodes, right? Yeah, three episodes. So probably just over a month. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, until we do this again, Ryan, whenever it is, it's always fun. It's always a good time. Um, yeah, absolutely. I guess it's, whatever it's we do will be back. after the new year, I'm assuming. I don't know when yeah, this I'm mystery sure. episode's coming up, but we'll figure it out. So uh, 
a pleasure. Yeah. And uh, you know, Always, send Seth. send hate mail uh, to me. All right. Yeah. Craig? Yeah, Jeff. Man, always good to connect. Much we always do outside of the show, but we still, do. Yeah. It, it. I miss doing this. So thanks for being. Yeah, here. yeah, I do too. Me too. Very much so. So we will right. do it again. And until and until then, then, Craig, take us out. And oh.